Let me welcome people back to the next session of this conference on James Madison. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that our fourth speaker has indeed arrived and is here in the room. <laughs> and we promise you that paper. Uh, Uh, we are going to run the next two papers uh, in sequence without a break. Uh, and then we'll plan to have a break after uh, the second paper, namely Pauline's paper. Uh, and then after that half hour reconvene for the panel uh, among the presenters and we, we hope uh, the Honorable uh, Lloyd Axworthy. Without saying any more, let me ask Barbara Oberg again, the editor of the Jefferson Papers, to introduce our next presenter. Barbara? It, it's a great pleasure and honor to introduce John Stagg, whom I think of as a good friend and colleague. We've suffered through a lot together over the last 12 or 14 years since we've known each other. Uh, John is a professor of history and editor-in-chief of the James Madison Papers at the University of Virginia, a position he's held since 1987. Before going there, he taught at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. I, you might catch a little New Zealand touch to his accent. <laughs> like Madison, uh, like Madison, John Stagg attended graduate school at Princeton. Madison arrived on campus in 1769, and 200 years later, John Stagg arrived. I, did you study Hebrew, though? No, no, he didn't study Hebrew. John is one of the world's foremost authorities on Madison, on Madison's politics and thought. His 1983 book, Mr. Madison's War, Politics, Diplomacy, and Warfare in the Early American Republic, remains the single best treatment of Madison's career. Recently, he's written two fine articles in the William and Mary Quarterly and the Journal of the Early Republic on the army during the early 19th century. He's now at work on a study of Madison and the Spanish borderlands, three episodes in diplomatic history. And his paper this afternoon will come out of that. Now, I, I, I want to say a little about his paper because he reminded me this morning or last night that he had told me this was a better title than actual paper. So I dug out the email that he sent me, which was almost a year ago when we were just starting to plan this conference. And, and I found it quite amusing and, and maybe helpful to you. On the Madison Conference next year, I am aware that there is some risk of it being a better title than it is a talk. But there is actually a serious historiographical issue at stake as I try and work out what really were Madison's policies for the Spanish borderlands during his presidency. And I think that uh, John will nicely compliment Gordon's remarks on Madison's presidency last night. Over the past 20 years, there has arisen a literature depicting how the Founding Fathers were seriously engaged in covert operations and all sorts of shenanigans with secret service funds. So it might be that we really could think of Madison as the first of the covert operations presidents and the founder of the CIA. I think this will be an intriguing talk that we all look forward to. John?
Thank you, Barbara, for that introduction. It's good to be back on the Princeton campus again after so many years uh, away from it. Now, as Barbara suggested, many of you are doubtless wondering how it was possible for me to come up with the title for this paper. After all, what connection can there be between the image most of us have of Madison as the scrupulous and thoughtful architect of a balanced constitution and the gross abuses of executive power that we have come to associate with a government agency that was not created until more than a century after Madison's death? Now, historically speaking, the answer to that question can be found in two places. One in the relatively recent past, stretching back to the 1970s, and the other one going back to the early days of last century, and I sort of do a double take here when I realize we have to refer to the 20th century as last century. I'm sort of not quite up on that one yet, but it is last century. Uh, it's beginning in the period just before World War I and going through to the 1930s. So starting with the relatively recent past, my story opens in the 1970s with the report of the Senate Committee headed by Frank Church of Idaho to look into the activities of the CIA, especially the agency's conduct of covert operations. These included the attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro, the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile, and the infringement of domestic civil liberties through such programs as the notorious Quintelpro operation. The Church Committee issued a stinging rebuke to the CIA for these and other misdeeds, and it reinforced its findings with the argument that many CIA activities after 1947 had departed a very long way from both the principles and the spirit of constitutional government that the Founding Fathers had sought to establish in 1787. The committee even went so far as to devote one whole volume, and this volume was written by the Congressional Research Service, one whole volume in its six-volume report laying out the historical evidence on which the charge that the agency had deviated from fundamental American principles could be based. Now, needless to say, neither the political judgments nor the historical scholarship of the Church Committee sat very well with the CIA itself. So maybe it was in the best traditions of the agency that one of its curators of historical intelligence, a man named Edward F. Sale, embarked on a counterattack by compiling evidence to show that many American presidents before 1947, and especially the presidents of the founding era, had engaged in covert operations of one sort or another, and nobody had given a second thought to either their morality or to their constitutionality. Now, Sale's counterblast appeared in 1986 in a journal, or the first number of a journal sponsored by the CIA itself, the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, but Sale did not act alone. Over the past 20 years or so, a number of other articles and monographs have appeared. They've come out of various think tanks, uh, other government agencies, university political science departments, and a number of freelance writers, some of whom may have worked for the CIA uh, in the past. And all these writings document Sale's basic argument with as much historical evidence uh, as their authors could lay their hand on. Now, for fairly obvious reasons, all of these publications paid particular attention to those, the activities of those founding fathers who later became presidents of the United States. After all, getting right with the founding fathers has long been a standard rhetorical trope in American political debate, so I don't think we can blame the CAA for trying to make the most of this opportunity. Now, in this quest for historical legitimacy, the agency historians, if I can sort of term them loosely that for the purposes of this talk, uh, funnily enough, they didn't do all that much digging in the archives. 
And the reason why they didn't do much digging in the archives was simply that they didn't have to. Instead, they relied heavily on the writings of a group of scholars writing in the first third of the 20th century, whose interests lay in the breakup of the Spanish Empire in the early 19th century and the response of the United States to that momentous development. And it's here that the second part of my historical background to this talk uh, kicks in. Now, these scholars, and I'm thinking particularly here of men like Isaac J. Cox, Charles C. Griffin, and Arthur Whitaker, these scholars performed yeoman service by going through hitherto unexplored Spanish and Latin American records in order to construct a reasonably well-grounded picture about how the United States went about establishing commercial and political relationships with Spain's rebellious colonies in the New World and the independent nations of Latin America. It were these scholars, for example, who gave us some idea, and only some idea, of the incredibly tortuous career of James Wilkinson as he walked his tightrope at serving Presidents Jefferson and Madison as the ranking Brigadier General in the United States Army, while at the same time taking a pension from Spain to frustrate or derail the policies of his government. And it was also these same scholars who alerted us to the fact that in the summer of 1810, when the revolutions for Spanish-American independence began in earnest, James Madison sent secret agents on assignments of various sorts into the Spanish colonies of Buenos Aires, Chile, Cuba, Florida, Mexico, and Venezuela. Now, you've probably heard of some of these uh, agents. The best known of them uh, was the South Carolinian Joel Poinsett, uh, whom we now know, if nothing else, uh, for giving his name to a Christmas pot plant. But of greater importance were the agents Madison sent into Cuba, Florida, and Mexico. All these regions border on, or they are adjacent to, the United States, and their rebellions against Spain also set in motion the chain of events that will ultimately lead to the incorporation of the so-called Spanish borderlands into the United States. These processes, in fact, began with Madison's annexation of Spanish West Florida in October 1810. They continued through the acquisition of East Florida in 1819, and they culminated in the uh, annexation of Texas and California between 1845 and 1848. Now, in all parts of the Spanish borderlands, it became very clear that Madison's agents had, in one way or another, become closely involved in the rebellions against Spain. So much so, in fact, that it almost seemed that Madison had sent them into those regions, regions for the express purpose of fomenting or encouraging rebellion. Now, that Madison might have done this seemed quite plausible. After all, the United States actually laid claim to both East and West Florida and also to Texas. Beginning in 1804, the Jefferson administration had pursued a diplomatic strategy based on the assumptions that East Florida might be acquired as fair compensation for spoliation claims against Spain dating back to the Quasar War of the late 1790s. And, of course, West Florida and Texas, uh, the United States argued, had also been part of the Louisiana Territory that was purchased from France in 1803. So that all that Madison seemed to be doing in the summer of 1810 was taking a few small steps to realize a long-standing agenda he had inherited from his friend and predecessor in the White House. Now, I can only barely begin to imagine the sense of satisfaction that the beleaguered curators of historical intelligence in the CIA experienced on digging into this early 20th century body of scholarship. 
And by the same token, I can not so easily imagine just how the Congressional Research Service actually managed to miss most of it, but they did. But leaving that aside, what do we have here? The father of the Constitution himself engaged in covert operations to the extent of inciting rebellions against a government with which the United States was at peace, and one of the consequences of that engagement was to accelerate the expansion of the Republic's borders to their present continental limits. And what better justification can there possibly be for the constitutionality of the CIA and its activities? What good American is going to quarrel with this, after all? So it is for that reason that James Madison has, become to, has come to occupy an honored place in the recent writings that take as their starting point the desire to repudiate the findings of the Church Committee. One such scholar, a man named Stephen Knott, who teaches in the United States Air Force Academy, fondly writes of somebody whom he refers to as, and I quote, the covert Madison, close quote. And he celebrates his presidency, and I quote again, as the, co as the golden age of covert operations in American history, close quote. At the fourth president, it would seem, organized revolutions. He broke the law. And everything that Madison is said to have done here, I'll just point out, is in violation of a law uh, passed in 1794 called the Neutrality Act, which made it illegal to set out or to organize on American soil uh, any sort of armed expedition against a territory or a nation with which the United States was at peace. So what Madison was doing uh, was illegal, and all the while he lied to the newspapers and to foreign governments about what he was doing. In the process, Madison became a skilled practitioner of the art later known as, quote, plausible presidential denial, close quote. Even better, there was no congressional oversight to speak of here and no hint of impeachment proceedings either. This is historical scholarship of the original intent approach to interpreting the Constitution with a vengeance, and I offer my apologies here to Jack Rakov. Maybe it's not original intent, but it's certainly a form of original practice. Uh, hence the title for my paper. Now, what do we make of all this? There is no doubt that this recent picture of Madison has cast certain aspects of his presidency into new and bold relief. But for a professional historian and one who is charged with the task of producing the supposedly definitive edition of his papers, it poses three very serious problems. One is simply the obviously anachronistic and possibly tendentious nature of the argument. That requires us to ask, therefore, just how good is it as serious and scholarly history? The second is the very difficult decisions it requires me to make as I edit those portions of Madison's papers that deal with these episodes. Do I edit the papers in ways that appears to endorse this depiction of James Madison, or do I go out of the way to point out where it might be questionable or wrong? Now, the longer-term intellectual and political consequences of any decision I make here, might make here could be very considerable. Who knows, a Supreme Court justice might end up something that I uh, wrote and even base a decision on it. But avoiding this problem uh, is not a very uh, useful strategy either, and it's difficult to avoid it in the sake of sort of being neutral on these uh, issues that I've just laid out here. Because both Madison's own personal papers and the available historical literature raise this problem pretty unambiguously, and it's, uh, to simply evade it in the name of neutrality, I think, would severely limit the value of the papers of James Madison as a research and a reference tool. 
And finally, several difficulties arise once we try to reconcile this picture of a Madison who pursued aggressive and illegal policies in the Spanish borderlands with a more familiar image of Madison that is enshrined in our historiography. And that is, of course, of the overly cautious and fumbling chief executive who made major foreign policy blunders throughout his first term and who then went on to compound them by his total mismanagement of the War of 1812 against Great Britain. This is the executive Madison in most textbooks of American history, the leader who was pushed into a war that he never wanted and then suffered the indignity of being the only president ever to be driven from the nation's capital by an invading army. I would submit, however, uh, that these two wildly divergent pictures of Madison in the White House cannot be easily reconciled, if they can be reconciled at all. It leaves us with a schizophrenic Madison, but I suspect it is the historians and not Madison who are schizophrenic here. We come back to Gordon's problem last night, and I'll affirm in a different context there is, in fact, only one James Madison. Uh, but I think for this reason, uh, historians need to deal with Madison's policies in the Spanish borderlands very carefully indeed, because if we don't get that right, we're going to get a lot wrong about what we think went on uh, in his presidencies. So it's this problem of Madison and the Spanish borderlands that has preoccupied me uh, in recent years, so I now want to turn to the question of what sense might be made of Madison's activities and the activities of his agents, particularly in the Floridas and Texas. Central to, this is any, uh, central to this discussion, any discussion of this matter is the case of West Florida in 1810. It was the one episode that did lead to the successful overthrow of the Spanish colonial regime and it was followed immediately by the annexation uh, of the province to the United States. Now, almost any book that you can consult here will tell you that Madison sent two agents into West Florida. Their names were William Wyckoff and George Matthews, and he sent them in to encourage American settlers in the province to declare their independence from Spain. The settlers did exactly that in September 1810, and when he received the news, Madison annexed the province in October though he did conceal the fact from Congress and the general public until December 1810, by which time United States military forces had taken possession of Baton Rouge. The West Florida episode is the most extensively studied example of an early American covert operation, and the agency historians to whom I referred to earlier have been unanimous in their praise of it as a model of how to plan and to execute a successful clandestine maneuver against a foreign government. It will come as no surprise to you, therefore, at this point, when I tell you that almost anything about the conventional wisdom in any book here is wrong, or at least it's got the emphasis in all the wrong places. It is certainly true that Madison sent the two agents in question into West Florida, but he did not, I stress not, order them to foment rebellion against Spain, and he explicitly ruled out the idea that the province should issue a declaration of independence. Nor has any historian of the subject paid sufficient attention to the problem of why Madison might have acted this way when he did. Now, the moment when Madison made his decision to send Wickoff and Matthews into West Florida, in fact, is the same moment he's made this decision to send all these other agents into Spanish-American colonies, it was the week beginning the 13th of June, 1810. We can be that precise about it. Now, on the 
weeks preceding that date, Madison had received the last dispatches written from Spain by his diplomat in Spain, a man named George Irving. Irving wrote these last dispatches as he was fleeing from Cadiz, which was about to be occupied by French forces, and Irving was predicting that it was absolutely inevitable that Napoleon would complete his conquest of the Iberian Peninsula and place his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, on the throne of Spain and the Indies. At the same time, Madison also received news from Venezuela that the local authorities in Caracas had announced to the world that they would never accept any member of the Bonaparte family as the ruler of the Spanish Empire. That statement was the first of many to issue from uh, the Spanish-American colonies after 1810, but to Madison all this information meant only one thing, and that was that the days of the Kingdom of Spain were numbered and that its American empire was on the point of dissolution. Now, we know, of course, that the Kingdom of Spain survived and that its American empire did not actually collapse until the early 1820s. But my point here is that in 1810, Madison believed he was dealing with events that would only be a matter of weeks and months, not years. His problem was what to do about it, especially with respect to those Spanish territories to which the United States laid claim. If he did nothing and waited on events, he surely ran the risk that American claims and interests would go by default. Either Joseph Bonaparte would inherit these claims as part of his empire, and if he did that, this would thereby recreate the security nightmare that the Republic thought it had escaped from by purchasing Louisiana in 1803, or Great Britain might seize various Spanish colonies to keep them out of the clutches of Napoleon and his brother. This last scenario, I would suggest, was not a contrived bogeyman to justify actions that Madison might have wanted to take for other reasons. Florida, after all, had been a British colony as late as the 1780s, and it was by no means far-fetched to suppose that if Great Britain wanted to stop Napoleon from swallowing up the Spanish Empire, one option it could pursue would be to seize Cuba or the Gulf Coast in order to give the Royal Navy strategic control of the important strategic approaches to Spanish America. This was one reason why Madison sent agents into the Spanish-American colonies. He needed to know exactly what was going on there and how it might affect American interests in the very near future. But coming back to West Florida, despite the potential gravity of the situation, Madison, as I mentioned, did not order his two agents to foment rebellion or to encourage the province to declare its independence. For Madison, the problem was not the Spanish colonial regime. He simply assumed it would become defunct as Spain itself collapsed as Napoleon conquered uh, Spain uh, by the end of 1810. Madison's problem was with what would fill the political vacuum he anticipated emerging on the Gulf Coast. His solution was to instruct his agents to persuade the American settlers in West Florida to organize a convention. And that convention was to issue an invitation to the United States to fill the vacuum by making good its claim uh, that it had purchased the province in 1803. Now that Madison chose this tactic in itself, I think, is evidence of how far he was thinking from in terms of subverting the Spanish regime. Conventions, and I might call on Gordon Wood to bear me out on this point, had long occupied an important role in Anglo-American and Republican political theory. They were useful as legitimating devices to deal with situations of an extraordinary nature, such as an interregnum or a power vacuum, that could seemingly be bridged by no other means. And just think of all the convention parliaments in English history itself, and also the conventions that have preceded the American Revolution uh, in the 1770s. 
Once Madison had received the invitation from the Convention of West Florida, it was his intention to lay it before Congress at the end of 1810 and obtain its sanction for what Madison assumed would be a relatively peaceful incorporation of the territory into the Republic. And in all of this, the President was not thinking of rebellions, subversion, or violence as the means to pursue his goals. Instead, he was trying to come up with the least disruptive and least radical way to protect the position that the United States had purchased West Florida in 1803. The problem was that this was not what happened. The West Florida Convention misread the script, and its members, fearing that Spanish forces from Cuba would suppress them, panicked by issuing a declaration of independence as a way of forcing Madison to take the sort of actions that he was trying to avoid. Madison then promptly annexed the province and suppressed the independent government of West Florida, not the Spanish regime. In fact, the Spanish garrison remained in possession of Mobile throughout these proceedings and for the next three years after that date, and Madison gave strict orders that American forces were not to attack that remaining symbol of Spanish authority in the province. But he had to seize the territory controlled by the independent Republic of West Florida or risk undermining the claim that the province had been purchased in 1803 and by right belonged to the United States. Those proceedings then led to a very nasty confrontation between the occupying forces sent in by Madison and the one and only president of the Independent Republic of West Florida, a man named Fulwer Skipwith. Skipwith was so angry that he drafted, though he ultimately decided against sending, two extremely angry and abusive letters to Madison complaining about the outrageous tyranny of the American occupation of West Florida. But more importantly, the episode was not a peaceful one because the West Florida Conventioneers, in declaring their independence, had seized a Spanish fort and killed a Spanish official. Those transactions gave the business a very different appearance from the one intended by James Madison. The result was that the United States acquired West Florida in 1810 by violence and bloodshed. And to the Spanish, not to mention to the British and the French as well, Madison appeared to have masterminded the whole thing. Now, Madison at this point could have hardly dispelled this charge by turning around and saying, this was not what I meant was to happen after all. I mean, that, that didn't help his case at all at that point. And he never attempted to do that. He was simply stuck with the consequences of what had taken place. And this, I think, is what really happened in West Florida in 1810. And my point is, it is hardly an example of a successful covert operation at all. If anything, it was the exact opposite of that. Nothing went according to plan, and historians might take that into consideration before they praise it as a brilliant example of how to overthrow a foreign government. So my sense of this is that Madison made something of a miscalculation or a blunder in his handling of the West Florida problem. He understood very well, though, that he had to protect the country from the possible consequences of that miscalculation, and these remained the likelihood that either France or Great Britain could move into East Florida or to Cuba to prevent the United States from attempting further encroachments on the Spanish Empire. Accordingly, in January 1811, Madison sought and received from Congress both the authority and the means to occupy East Florida in the event of either a foreign power seizing that province or the local authority there voluntarily agreeing to turn it over to the United States. Now, this authority was granted in the so-called No Transfer Resolution, and historians often describe the No Transfer Resolution uh, as one of the antecedents of the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. 
Now, the second contingency implied in the resolution that the local authorities might turn uh, East Florida over to the United States was not as actually unlikely or as implausible as we might think. In 1810, the Spanish governor of West Florida, thinking just as Madison had thought that Napoleon was about to conquer all Spain, had hinted that he might consider surrendering Mobile to the United States as a way of keeping it out of the hands of France or Joseph Bonaparte. It was, therefore, by no means impossible that an arrangement might be made for Mobile which could then be extended to cover East Florida, especially if Cadiz fell to French forces or a British fleet showed up off the Florida Capes. Acting on that assumption, Madison in early 1811 sent two agents into Mobile and East Florida to observe developments in those places, and he authorised them to act if one of the two contingencies anticipated in the no-transfer resolution should come to pass. The two agents in question were George Matthews, whom we've already met before, and uh, John McKee. Now, historians, especially those whom I've referred to as the agency uh, historians, uh, have often regarded the wording of the no-transfer resolution as so broad and so hopelessly vague that it must have been written for the purpose of allowing the United States to subvert the government of East Florida in order to take the territory into the Republic. But that is to write from the vantage point of hindsight and in effect to claim what was to know, to know what was going to happen before it actually happened. And this is probably, I think, something that all historians should agree we would try to avoid. But if we suspend the clarity of hindsight for the moment, I would submit that the wording and the purposes of the no-transfer resolution were quite specific, and they meant exactly what they said. And after all, I think we all probably agree that Madison was a man who chose his words carefully about questions of meaning. But in East Florida, as in West Florida, events did not work out as they were supposed to. Matthews and McKee went into both Mobile and East Florida. They sought out the Spanish authorities, and they informed them about the terms of the no-transfer resolution. The Spanish did not respond positively. By the middle of 1811, the situation in Spain seemed by no means as dire as it had done in 1810. Not only had Cadiz not fallen, but the authorities there had also summoned the Cortes, a Spanish imperial parliament, to reorganise the resistance to Napoleon on the broadest possible basis. And, understandably enough, the Spanish in East Florida, after what had happened in West Florida in 1810, were a little weary by this time of professions of good intentions from American agents. They accordingly rebuffed Matthews and McKee. This led Matthews to the conclusion that the authorities in East Florida would not consent to turn the province over to the United States unless they were replaced with another local authority of, shall we say, a more willing disposition. And Matthews had some ideas on this score. Uh, Matthews, it is important to stress, had served as the governor of Georgia previously in his career. His political acquaintances were extensive, and they included a number of Georgia planters who had moved into East Florida to develop plantations there. Many of these Georgians had taken out Spanish citizenship. They did so because that was the condition for obtaining legal title to land and the right to do business in the Spanish colony. So Matthews came up with the absolutely brilliant idea of replacing the Spanish colonial authorities with a new government of American-born Spanish subjects who might voluntarily turn East Florida over to the United States. And after August 1811, this was exactly what Matthews set out to do. There thus emerged in East Florida the so-called Patriot Party, and at its head was a prominent Georgian-born Spanish subject with the resplendent Hispanic name of John Houston McIntosh. 
Now, in fairness to Matthews here, it needs to be said that he did not conceal from the administration what he was doing or why he was doing it. He reported this back to the State Department and he requested on several occasions arms and ammunition for his scheme. He even, believe it or not, promised to be discreet in his activities so as not to compromise the government of the United States. Madison, uh, sorry, Matthews received no reply to any of these letters. In fact, he received no communication from Washington on any subject at any time at all between the summer of 1811 and the spring of 1812. Nevertheless, Matthews went about his self-assigned task. The two contingencies anticipated in the no-transfer resolution permitted the employment of American forces to carry them out. So Matthews then made contact with American Army and Navy officers on the Gulf Coast and on the border between Georgia and Spanish Florida. And to cut a very long story short here, the strategically located Army officer, a man named Major Laval, refused to go along with the scheme, telling Matthews that what he was doing could not be justified by his instructions. The Navy officer, uh, Captain Hugh Campbell, however, was prepared to play ball and he agreed to place a few gunboats at Matthews' disposal. Matthews put it all together and in March 1812, he and the Patriot forces, accompanied by four US Navy gunboats, attacked the Spanish garrison on Amelia Island and forced its surrender. The Patriots then reconstituted themselves as the government of East Florida, signed an agreement with Matthews turning the province over to the United States, and Matthews then proudly forwarded that agreement to Washington. The next move was up to Madison. To the surprise of many, he repudiated Matthews' action, and on the 4th of April 1812, the Secretary of State reprimanded the agent accordingly, telling him he'd violated his instructions and he'd gone, off the, uh, uh, gone out of the ballpark. East Florida, it turned out, would not become part of the United States until 1819, two years after Madison had left the presidency. Now, the only remark that Madison made about the episode that survives to today was in an April 1812 letter to Jefferson where he wrote, and I quote, In East Florida, Matthews has been playing a tragic comedy in the face of common sense as well as his instructions. His extravagance is places in the most distressing dilemma. Close quote. Now, that might seem straightforward enough, but historians have never taken Madison at his own word here as the reason for disavowing Matthews. Their arguments for not doing so boil down to three points, or three assumptions about what had occurred in this episode. One is that just as Madison had intended to subvert the government of West Florida and had in fact done so, he was trying to pull off the same stunt in East Florida. The second is that Matt, the administration had a pretty fair idea of what Matthews was thinking of doing and had purposely failed to stop him from doing it. The third is that Madison would have accepted East Florida from Matthews had it not been for an unfortunate problem of timing. Now, by this they mean uh, the following. In March 1812, Madison had sent to Congress the letters of a British spy in America, a man named Captain John Henry, who in 1808 had been sent into New England to assess the prospects for that region seceding from the Union. Matthew, Madison had acquired Henry's letters uh, earlier in the year and he sent them to Congress in March 1812 in the hope of stirring up anti-British sentiment as a prelude to the war for which the nation was then preparing. 
The problem was, of course, that Matthews appeared to be guilty of exactly the same offence for which Madison was trying to indict Great Britain as a justification for war against Great Britain. And for that reason, if for no other, uh, Matthews had to be disavowed, and Madison, it said, resorted to the doctrine of plausible presidential deniability as a way of doing so. Now, there is no doubt that the problem of timing was unfortunate. Great Britain was an ally of the Spanish Bourbon monarchy, and Napoleon had, in fact, imprisoned the legitimate Bourbon king of Spain, Ferdinand VII, in a castle in the south of France. So there was a legitimate Spanish king, and Britain recognised that legitimate Spanish king. And so what Matthews had done in 1812 promised to make the next meeting between James Madison and the British minister in Washington one of excruciating embarrassment. You just sort of leave it to imagine what the British minister was going to say to Madison about this episode. And it's easy to see why Madison would not have wanted to discuss the matter with the British minister as he was trying to justify a war against Great Britain. Unless, of course, we assume that Madison was so reckless that he wanted to go to war with both Great Britain and Spain at the same time. Uh, but I don't think he was, and there was no evidence that Madison was ever prepared to go that far uh, or to risk that development. But does that mean that had it not been for the problem of the Henry letters, that Madison would otherwise have seized East Florida in 1812? It's always difficult to answer that sort of hypothetical counterfactual proposition with any certainty. But the assumption that Madison was trying to seize East Florida in 1812, just as he had taken West Florida in 1810, is in itself somewhat fallacious. It rests on a fairly serious misunderstanding of both what Madison had intended in 1810 and what did in fact happen in that year. In that sense, the two episodes were not as familiar as historians like, uh, not as similar, sorry, as historians have liked to believe, and they should not assume what might have been true in one case is equally true for the other, especially if they are wrong in their assumptions about the first case anyway. If so, that leaves us with the problem that the administration knew what Matthews was up to and had purposely failed to stop him, and therefore that it must have intended him to have done it. Perhaps, uh, you know, this is, we can uh, talk about this at some length, though I would submit here that it is possible, in the abstract sense at least anyway, for a person not to take an action and to believe that the act of omission, even if it is a conscious act of omission, would have no real consequences. Now, in this context, we might recall that on several occasions, Matthews had specifically requested reinforcements and additional supplies for his scheme on the grounds that he actually couldn't do it uh, with the resources that were available to him at the time. And these, he told the War Department, he said, we have 200 troops in the region and we have four gunboats. That's the total extent uh, of our military force. Uh, so he asked for more reinforcements, more arms, more ammunition. Uh, he did so on several occasions in the second half of 1811. The administration never responded to any of those requests, and its silence here might be interpreted not as consent, but as disapproval and a reminder, albeit a tacit one, that Matthews had his orders and he should confine himself to the limits they imposed on his actions. One might then explain the administration's silence towards Matthews before 18, April 1812 in a number of other ways. One is that by that time the President and his Cabinet had become totally preoccupied for preparing the war against Great Britain. Two, that sort of that agent in East Florida had slipped below the horizon and they didn't remember about him again until he suddenly sprang his actions on them in, in the spring of 1812. 
and three is that madison never supposed that matthews would actually act on his own ideas to the extent of him violating his instructions anyway those instructions at the time they were written did not contemplate the sort of actions that matthews eventually took after all is it plausible that any administration could have actually wanted Matthews to have seized East Florida as he did when at the very same time Madison was planning to use a similar episode involving British subversion as a justification for war against that nation uh, and a nation that was allied with Spain. Madison might have made plenty of mistakes as president, but I think it's difficult to believe he was actually so stupid as that scenario suggests. This in turn might remind us that not everything in history is the result of a conspiracy. And in this case, we should be prepared to consider the possibility that the East Florida fiasco was the result of a chapter of accidents. Now that, of course, is to give Madison the benefit of the doubt. But I think there is a case to be made here that he is entitled to the benefit of the doubt and that he disavowed Matthews because he had violated both his instructions and the neutrality laws of the United States. But probably some of you are a little skeptical about what I've been saying for the past few moments and you probably think, no, it doesn't look good to me. Madison shouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt about East Florida. If you think that, I would ask you to suspend your judgment for just a little longer until we consider the third case of an executive agent getting embroiled in a rebellion in the Spanish borderlands. And that is the case of Texas in 1812 and 1813. The Texan episode is better known as the Gutierrez McGee Raid. It is so named because of its two leaders, Augustus McGee, who was a former officer from the United States Army, and Jose Bernardo Maximilian Gutierrez de Lara, whom we might describe, I suppose, as a Mexican freedom fighter. Now this raid, or technically uh, it's more frequently referred to as a filibuster, was one of the largest anti-Spanish operations ever undertaken in the early 19th century. Forces amounting to about 1,500 Americans and Mexicans invaded Texas after August 1812. They declared Texas to be independent in April 1813, and they remained in the province until August 1813, when they were finally defeated by royalist Spanish forces. Historians of American national politics and diplomacy have tended to overlook this episode. Go to a biography of James Madison and you won't find this episode mentioned in any of them. Uh, so th th we've overlooked this episode, but it in fact does have an extensive regional historiography, because most of its most noteworthy events occurred in the region of San Antonio and not too far from the Alamo. For that reason, among others, Mexicans have always regarded the Gutierrez-McGee raid as a prelude to the Texan movement for independence in the 1830s, and I think it has become an article of faith among Mexicans that the United States tried to dismember their nation in 1812-1813 at the very time when it was struggling to establish its own independence from Spain. This is the first manifestation of the problem of the Colossus of the North in Mexican impressions of the United States. Now, one reason why the Mexicans believe this is that we can find an American agent at the center of these events. That agent was William Shaler, a Connecticut merchant who had been sent by Madison in June 1810 on missions to both Cuba and Mexico. And Shaler, just as surely as Matthews had done in East Florida, became deeply involved in the struggle to the point that in April 1813 he tried to take over the direction of the filibuster by ousting Gutierrez as leader of the Mexican rebels and replacing him with another Spanish-American revolutionary, Jose Alvarez de Toledo. 
Shalem, moreover, left by far the largest paper trail of all these early American agents. Throughout the 30 months of his mission, Shaler sent over 150 letters to the State Department, and that's an average of over five letters per month. And I have to say, they are very good letters indeed, once you get past the problem of his very difficult handwriting. They are fascinating documents. Uh, they are such good documents, in fact, that they will almost certainly disqualify Shaler for a job in the CIA today on the grounds that no agent should ever leave a paper trail like that. It's, yeah, it's mind-boggling. Uh, the problem is they convey to the administration a great deal of fascinating detail about the filibuster. So much detail, in fact, that the historians have concluded that the agent could not possibly have known so much about this raid unless he had also been actively engaged in organizing it right from the outset. Now, historians have assumed that Shaler was the organizing force behind the filibuster, and they have maintained that Madison intended Shaler to tax Texas from Mexico in order to bring it into the United States, just as they argue that Madison tried to bring East and West Florida into the Republic in a similar fashion. They have assumed these, attentions from their, these intentions from their interpretation of both Shaler's letters and Shaler's acquaintance with the leaders of the filibuster. He knew them well, there's no doubt about that. And as further proof that this was Madison's purpose, historians believe that they have found evidence that the administration, in this case, engaged in a classic diversionary tactic, fully worthy of the CIA itself, as part of the effort to subvert the Spanish regime in Texas. Now that tactic was the attempt made by Madison in the summer of 1812 to send another agent, and the agent of this name is a man named John Hamilton Robinson, uh, who originally came from Virginia, that Madison in the summer of 1812 sent Robinson as another agent to establish diplomatic relations with the Spanish authorities in Texas, most notably a man named Don Nemesio Salcedo, who was the Commandant General of the Internal Provinces of Mexico, which is the Spanish Administrative Division, which included Texas, uh, uh, that included the Internal Provinces, included uh, Texas. Now, the problem with the Robinson mission in 1812 is that Robinson was instructed to make a deal with Nemesio Salcedo that would have preserved the existing borders between the United States and Mexico until such time as they could be amicably negotiated at some later date. There is therefore no way in which this offer could have been sincere if it is assumed that Shaler had also been sent by Madison on another mission to detach Texas from Mexico at the same time. The conclusion seemed inescapable. The Shaler ministry mission was the real policy of the administration and the Robinson mission was the diversionary tactic. So what is the truth here? Now, in constructing this interpretation that I've just described, historians never bothered to go in search of the instructions Shaler received for his mission. But one of the advantages of having to sort of put out the definitive edition of the papers of James Madison, that one is required to find documents like this. And as it so happens, I did find the instructions that were given to Shaler by the Madison administration in 1810. And these instructions can also be supplemented by the remarkable recent discovery of Shaler's letterbooks and diaries, would you believe diaries, for his Mexican mission. And when Shaler's letters to Washington are read in the light of the contents of his instructions, his letterbooks, and his diaries, a very different picture begins to emerge of both his activities and Madison's intentions are in the Spanish borderlands. So, what was Shaler supposed to be doing then? 
Let me state at the outset that his instructions make absolutely no mention of fomenting rebellion, subverting the government of Mexico, or detaching Texas for the United States. Instead, in 1810, Shaler was told to go first to Cuba to assess where the allegiances of that island's inhabitants might lie in the event of the collapse of the Spanish monarchy. Were the Cubans, Madison wanted to know, pro-British, were they pro-French, or were they pro-American? And if they were pro-American, was it possible that Cubans might even be interested in joining the United States? The question was raised at that early point in Cuban-American relations. Now, what Shaler actually determined on these matters is that it was quite possible that the Cubans were more pro-American than they were pro-British or pro-French, but that they had very little interest in joining the United States. And Shaler also concluded that it didn't matter very much whether they actually joined the Union or not, provided Cuba itself could be kept free from the influence of European imperial powers. After the Cuban mission, Shaler was then to go to Veracruz in Mexico to make his way to the region around Mexico City and report back on the progress of the rebellion against Spain. Now, in the event of Mexico declaring its independence, Shaler was to make contact with the successor regime. And he was told to make contact with the successor regime to spread American goodwill, to talk about trade prospects, and to see what Mexicans thought about the future of Florida and Texas. In other words, to see what the Mexicans thought about those parts uh, of Spanish territory that the United States had claimed for itself as a consequence of the Louisiana Purchase. Now, Shaler's instructions made it clear that Madison would take the line that the Floridas, East and West Florida, must become part of the United States, but that the question of the boundary between Mexico and the United States was open for friendly negotiation. Indeed, Shaler was explicitly told that the United States would not insist on the Rio Grande as the boundary line. And that meant, in practical terms, that if Mexico agreed that the Floridas would come to the United States, the United States, for its part, would leave Texas uh, to Mexico. Now, there's possibly something for President George W. Bush and President Vicente Fox to talk about here at some future meeting on their ranch, and they might want to revisit this deal. But those of you who have some grasp of the history of the United States foreign policy will immediately note that in this idea are some of the elements of the later transcontinental treaty of 1819 in which the United States did renounce its claim to Texas in exactly the ways anticipated by Shaler's instructions. But this is to get too far ahead of my story. What actually happened was that Shaler never got to Veracruz or Mexico City. The Spanish threw him out of Cuba in November 1811. They thought he was a French agent, actually. Shaler didn't concede. He said, I'm an American agent, and I want to do X, Y, and Z. And they didn't believe him. They thought he was French. Um, but so they expelled him from Cuba in 1811, and he ended up in New Orleans, where he then met the Mexican rebel Gutierrez, who had come to the United States in quest of aid for his cause. Shaler then decided to accompany Gutierrez to Nagatash as a way of getting into Mexico by the back door and carry out his 18 twin instructions in that fashion. Now, these instructions, as I've already said, made no mention of filibusters and subversion, and what Shaler's letterbooks and diaries make abundantly clear is although he knew a great deal about the activities of Gutierrez and McGee in organizing their invasion of Texas, he neither participated in those activities nor did he approve of them as sound policy as far as American interests in the borderlands was concerned. He by and large reported developments back to Washington, adding that if the filibuster should succeed, and Shaler actually regarded himself as powerless to stop it, he said, look, it's going to happen no matter what I do, he would simply follow in its wake as a way of getting into Mexico and ultimately reaching Mexico City in that manner. 
And all of Shaler's instructions and actions dealing with the filibuster were in fact consistent with that plan until the spring of 1813 when the agent did intervene in the filibuster by replacing Gutierrez as leader of the Mexican rebels. He did not take this action in accordance with any orders from Washington, but more simply because he became so angry with the Mexican rebels after they murdered all the Spanish officers they had taken prisoner when they captured San Antonio in March 1813, that he decided on his own initiative that Gutierrez had to be replaced if the Mexican Revolution itself was not to degenerate into barbarism and tyranny. Now, by this stage, Shaler was not concerned with the details of boundary disputes between Mexico and the United States, but he did care enough about the larger issues at stake to want the United States to have a Republican Mexico for a neighbor rather than unenlightened and murderous despotism. And that was what Shaler thought the alternatives were. But he always assumed that Texas would be part of a Mexican Republic and not part of the United States. And this can be documented in copious ways from the material contained in his letterbooks, and I haven't got time to sort of go into all the other details which in fact establishes that point. So, what did Madison do when he learned that Shaler had ousted Gutierrez as leader of the Mexican rebels? In June 1813, he disavowed the act and reprimanded the agent in exactly the same terms that Matthews had been reprimanded in April 1812, that his actions had exceeded his instructions and violated the neutrality laws of the United States. And on this occasion, unlike in 1812, there was no problem of unfortunate timing that might have prevented Madison going on just to see what might be gained from Shaler's actions. Had Madison wanted Texas at this juncture, he could have let his agent continue on whatever venture he was embarked upon. Instead, he stopped him and ordered him to get out of Mexico altogether. Now, if so, what of the Robinson mission as the classic diversionary tactic to confuse the Spanish in Mexico? What was once a difficult problem now seems to be quite clear. If Shaler's mission was not about subversion and filibustering, then Robinson's mission was exactly about what Robinson's instructions said it was, namely that Madison wanted to conclude a negotiated boundary settlement in the southwest with whatever neighboring government was in power there, be that government Spanish or Mexican. But after the summer of 1810, Madison was more inclined to assume that it was going to be a Mexican government rather than a Spanish one. In conclusion, then, where does that leave us with our larger question about Madison's actions in the Spanish borderlands as furnishing historical precedents that might sanction seemingly similar covert operations on the part of later American presidents? Recall here that historians who have studied this subject have all assumed that there was essential similarity in motives, goals, and methods in Madison's policies towards East Florida, West Florida, and Texas. Namely, that the president wanted to annex all three regions to the United States and that he employed the clandestine tactic of overthrowing the colonial regime in each case. That assumption is simply incorrect. Madison approached each of the three cases with different goals and different methods in mind. In no case was subversion either his purpose or his method, and when two of his agents did engage in these tactics, they were disavowed and repudiated for breaking orders and breaking the law. Maybe this is perhaps not the best record that the CIA wants to claim as vindication for its own historical record, and in that sense there is, I think, a world of difference between Madison sending agents into some of Spain's rebellious colonies after 1810 and, let us say, Richard Nixon's actions against Salvador Allende in Chile in the 1970s. Now, the issue here is not really whether Madison or other early presidents used secret or confidential agents, or that they controlled the discretionary money of a contingent fund for unspecified purposes with no congressional oversight. 
All early American presidents used such agents for a wide variety of tasks that could not otherwise be carried out by the then existing institutions of government. There was nothing very surprising or even necessarily anything very sinister about that. The real issue is, is whether a founding father like James Madison could ever have sanctioned such a massive concentration of unchecked power in the executive branch of, uh, of the uh, government in the manner that the CIA offered to American presidents in the age of the Cold War. Now, Madison certainly understood the dangers that unlimited executive discretion in the realm of foreign policy and war posed for constitutional liberty at home. As he wrote to Jefferson on at least two occasions uh, at the height of uh, John Adams' quasi-war against France in the, in, in the 1790s, he said, and it was, I quote, a universal truth that throughout history that the fetters imposed on liberty at home have ever been forged out of the weapons provided for the defence against real, pretended or imaginary dangers from abroad, close quote. So if Madison had any use for the notion of a balanced constitution as the way of checking the dangers of uncontrolled power, it is hard to believe that he might not have had some sympathy for the purposes of the church committee and that he would have applied something of the logic of his own 51st Federalist essay to their situation. That essay, uh, recall, and I'm just going to paraphrase it very briefly here, that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But because men were not angels, ambition must be made to counteract ambition in order to supply by rival and opposite interests the defect of better motives. These auxiliary precautions, Madison included, should be taken into consideration in the distribution of the supreme powers and offices of uh, the state. And finally, if I may be allowed to conclude on a purely personal note, many of you in this room here may remember the late Wesley Frank Craven, who for many years lived uh, in Dickinson Hall and taught colonial history uh, to the Princeton History Department. Frank uh, was one of the directors of my dissertation, and I well recall in 1973, and note again that it is 1973, giving him the first draft of my first chapter. In that chapter, I had come across some evidence that Madison had been much more directly involved in the political manoeuvring that had led to the War of 1812 than most historians had previously supposed. I laid out this evidence with all the enthusiasm of a graduate student eager to make a good impression. I succeeded, but not quite in the ways that I had imagined. Frank read the chapter and said, Yeah, that's very interesting, but I have, he said, John, just one word of advice for you. Remember, he said, James Madison was not Richard Nixon. As always, Frank, you are right, more so than you could have ever known. <laughs> Thank you. All right, uh, our organizer tells us we have space for two questions. Okay. Yes. George Washington had had some success with spy networks during the revolution. Was that, in a way, the foundation for the agents that worked for later presidents and Madison? Well, yes, in the sense, uh, in the sense that I think so. That uh, Washington, as commander-in-chief, and then subsequently as president himself, and all future presidents, realized that they did need some intelligence. Uh, and there were no formal ways of getting this. You know, there was no government agency you could get to. So they resorted to this ad hoc practice of employing agencies uh, when the occasion required. They were one-off things. Um, uh, 
So, so in that sense, yes. Uh, uh, if you go and look at some of these histories of covert operations, they will in fact start with Washington's intelligence gathering in the revolution itself, then go on. Uh, but all, and uh, there are books on executive agents in early American foreign policy. Uh, the difference is, of course, that it's, it's, it's on an ad hoc basis. It's never really institutionalized. The difference, of course, is in the 20th century uh, is that it became coordinated and institutionalized and became systemic. Uh, and, of course, as we've been saying in a number of different contexts uh, uh, throughout last night, you know, uh, Madison's very sensitive to systemic consequences and the differences between something that's systemic and something that may be not systemic as opposed to circumstantial. But, yes, most historians would sort of regard uh, Washington's intelligence uh, activities as, as, as a sort of early example of this. Uh, and you can sort of you, you trace the, you trace the history of American intelligence to that very that very circumstance that you just raised. Uh, one more silence, uh, Ralph. <laughs> I wonder if the problem isn't has, doesn't have to do with the the Cold War. Or it wasn't cold. It was a, the great power struggle of the day was between France and Britain. Mm. And the United States was a, uh, not a great power at the time. And so everything depended on what the great powers were going to do about these territories. Either, very ominously, Napoleonic power in Spain might take over, or the British fleet might occupy it. And the, those are the worst alternatives yes. yeah. for the United States. And the other alternatives, if a legitimate, weak Spanish power stayed, that was legally okay, but alternative to that would have to be either independence movement or possibly the American uh, taking over of those, or the, the American, what would we say, uh, sponsorship of those movements. And the, 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 that's the real problem. The real problem is that we weren't a great power. And in that sense, uh, we weren't maneuvering to uh, uh, subvert other countries from our great power stand us, but, but really we were working within the, the, the periphery of the great power struggle. Yeah, yeah that, that's absolutely right. That's one way of defining the alternatives uh, and the, the, the possibilities that emerge out of the situation. Uh, and uh, it was a nightmare of American foreign policy that the British would be the ultimate beneficiaries of the breakup of the Spanish Empire. And uh, it's, it's a theme that's sort of subterranean, it runs its surface in all sorts of ways. And I, I think it came to the front in the summer of 1810 because uh, Madison, I think, uh, reached the conclusion that Spain it was on its last legs. The end was in sight. And it's, 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 uh, you define one set of alternatives. And the issue really is, uh, or the last one in some ways, what is the relationship with the United States to an independence movements in these regions. Uh, but it's complicated in this case, but in two of the three cases, the United States had a prior claim. Now you can question how soundly based that claim was. You know, Henry Adams wrote sarcastically about the, the value of the claim to West Florida and things like that, but nonetheless the claims had been staked out some time ago. And in 1810, I think in, this is particularly West Florida and Texas, uh, they have to be vindicated or they'll be forfeited. Uh, but I think in neither case, in fact, although that's the problem that Madison's looking at, that he, that he actually thought that he was, so he, I'm saying he didn't send an agent to sponsor independent movements for manipulation for that purpose. Uh, 
I think he was, uh, in some cases, he, he was looking to negotiate with the, uh, with the new power. That's certainly the case in Texas. Uh, in other words, all these episodes are, in fact, much more complex than the historiography we have on them would lead us to believe. We, in fact, have a very simple-minded historiography on this that, in fact, suggests, well, it looks fishy, and somewhat looks fishy. And the way to explain that fishiness is, well, of course, you know, they wanted these places, they went out and got them, and they weren't too particular about the means. Uh, but Madison, I think, was a man who was always particular about means. Uh. I'm John Murren in Early American History at Princeton. I, I'd like to introduce our next speaker. I, she grew up in St. Paul while I grew up across the river in Minneapolis, which means that uh, since the rivalry between the two cities was sometimes quite fierce, maybe we should be uh, enemies. But she's always laughed at my anecdotes, and I think that that made a big difference. All right, she's gone, you know, we met over 30 years ago uh, in the 60s in Cambridge, uh, and uh, uh, she's gone on to have a distinguished career. She's now the uh, William Rand Kennan Jr. Professor of American History at MIT. Uh, she's the author of three books and lots of other things, uh, and all of them have been uh, quite influential. Uh, the one I keep assigning to undergraduates is her first, From Resistance to Revolution, which is a study really of how British rule uh, became delegitimated in America uh, in the 1760s down to 1776. Uh, she followed that with Old Revolutionaries, uh, which is a series of essays on different people like Samuel Adams and Dr. Thomas Young and Isaac Sears and uh, Charles Carroll of Carrollton and the Bartlett's of New Hampshire, husband and wife. Uh, Mary John Bartlett? I've forgotten his first name. Well, anyway, uh, and uh, I, I think uh, her essays on Samuel Adams are the best interpretation of Samuel Adams anybody has ever provided. Uh, she really makes sense of his life. And finally, she uh, fairly recently put out American Scripture, which is a study of the Declaration of Independence. It has many virtues. Uh, the chapter I like best is the one uh, on the other Declarations of Independence. There are about 90 of them that she found prior to July 4th, uh, either local communities, sometimes a whole colony. Uh, but uh, what are they saying? And uh, what arguments do they make for American independence? Uh, one of the single most interesting findings in the book is that very few of them thought there was any need to go back before the 19th of April, 1775, uh, to justify independence. It was the king's decision to wage war on his American subjects, which, which is the ultimate factor in delegitimating British rule in America. So Pauline's gonna, uh, Pauline Mayer is going to speak to us on the states and the nation, uh, James Madison and American federalism. Thank you. Uh, John Murren is indeed an old friend, and uh, I suppose the old Minnesota bond has always been uh, a particularly strong one. Uh, I think I know John, or things about John, however, that aren't commonly known even to Princeton alumni. I doubt many of you know about his heroic effort as a child to save the Fauché Tower, a Minneapolis landmark from Nazi bombers. Um, 
it has struck me that historians are very often uh, called upon to explain the relevance of their discipline, particularly by people who think it's perfectly irrelevant. I, or as, as that awful phrase goes, history is history. Uh, it has also struck me, however, that these hostile questioners often fall silent when they discover they are confronted by a historian who studies the American Revolution, or particularly one who studies the Constitution. The way that document evolved, the purposes that explain particular institutions, or the arrangement of the whole, even the 18th century understanding of specific phrases high crimes and misdemeanors comes to mind, uh, are of continuing importance since they help make sense of the government which we still live under. I would uh, submit, however, what's probably clear to everyone that history isn't uniformly helpful in making sense of controversial uh, issues having to do with the Constitution. We sometimes confront issues that never crossed the founders' minds. Gay rights, for example, there we're on our own. In another uh, category of cases, the founders adopted an institution on assumptions that subsequently proved incorrect. In the spirit of the 18th century, we should then reopen the issue courageously and make appropriate repairs, which we have sometimes done the Twelfth Amendment, which adapted the election of the president to the unanticipated development of political parties, and sometimes, I would say very often, failed to do the Electoral College. But there remains a third category of issues that inspired protracted reflection among the founders and on which they arrived at a profound and satisfying understanding that became orthodox for several generations of their descendants. But sometimes those sophisticated insights seem to elude us. The best example of that is the subject of my talk, the relationship of states and nation within the American Republic. Uh, the issue came up recently in Alden v. Maine, a 1999 case in which the Supreme Court decided that a Maine probation officer could not sue the state of Maine for violating overtime provisions of the Fair Labor, Labor Standards Act of 1938. States were not subject to suits by their own citizens without their consent, the court decided, because immunity from suit was a fundamental aspect of the sovereignty that the states enjoyed before ratification of the Constitution and which they retain today, except as altered by the plan of the convention or certain constitutional amendments. And I will say, until this week, the constitutional amendment that seemed to be the clearest example of a case that inhibited uh, or, or limited state immunity from prosecution was the 14th Amendment, but that is history. <laughs> In short, the court asserted that the states as governments remain sovereign and that their sovereignty brought an immunity from prosecution under acts of Congress, even if those acts implemented powers granted by the Constitution. 
Two days ago, the court expanded that immunity, which I was talking about a second ago. In, boss, in Board of Trustees of the University of Alabama v. Garrett, it freed states from damage suits under the Americans with Disabilities Acts of 1990. Uh, it's not my topic, and it's not my intention to discuss either case in detail here, except I do want to say that Alden v. Maine, which included an extensive historical argument uh, for sovereign immunity, inspired my choice of topic. I think Jack Rakoff was right when he described Madison in his in Jack's little biography as the New Republic's most powerful and probing intellect. He was also a man who grappled with the character of the Americans' compound republic, as he called it, from the 1780s on until his death in 1836. How, I wondered, could his views on the relationship of states to the nation and the location of sovereignty within the American Republic be anything but instructive? I assumed when I volunteered the topic, all too casually it turned out, that Madison's thought on American federalism developed over time, and my task would be simply to trace the evolution of his thinking and then to describe his considered conclusions. That as I read studies that have been published since I last worked on Madison at the time of the Constitutional Bicentennial, uh, including a set of really first-rate books by Jack Rakoff, Lance Banning, and Drew McCoy, and as I looked more closely at Madison's writings over a long period of time, I came to doubt that assumption. In other words, I confronted the consistency issue, which I gathered Gordon Wood raised last night. I had flattered myself, Madison wrote a correspondent in 1832, some 81 years after his birth, that I was as little chargeable with inconsistencies as any of my fellow laborers through so long a period of life. In the end, he convinced me of his essential consistency, at least from the time of the ratification controversy on. To be sure, the controversies that inspired his reflections required different emphases and sometimes inspired a more forceful statement of what remained latent in earlier writings. There's no doubt, moreover, that he learned from his experiences and observations, but as Madison, Madison himself put it, a change of opinions under the lights of experience and the results of improved reflection is hardly cause for censure. I propose, in short, to describe uh, the history of, of sovereignty. Uh, look carefully on, at Madison's pronounce, uh, pronouncements on the relationship of the states and nation, which always raised the nagging question of where sovereignty lay. Uh, but, but without getting into too much detail on the controversies that, pro that, pro that provoke them. And then finally to return uh, better informed to Alden v. Maine and this week's decision as well. I have to say, as you will uh, gather at the end, I'm not altogether fond of, uh, of, of these two decisions and a whole series of related ones that have been made by the Supreme Court, but nonetheless I'm profoundly grateful uh, even to the majority, I like the minority of the Supreme Court. Uh, I, when I volunteered this topic, it seemed like a good idea. And when I actually sat down to write it, I said to myself, you had to have been out of your mind. 
uh, on this celebratory occasion, you propose to present a learned discourse on what must be the most mind-boggling concept in the history of American politics. And I didn't even know that I'd be doing it after the audience was invited to go through the serpentine course of American diplomacy in the early republic. Uh, it was sort of, you know, one hard issue after another. Uh, but the court, I think, bailed me out. And how was I to know what would be in New York Times yesterday morning? Uh, I, am, I say to myself that Princeton alumni couldn't be any dumber than MIT students. And over and over, I, uh, I think you can understand this one. And I would propose beyond that that it's worth the effort that this question of sovereignty, its meaning over time, its meaning as the court is using it, is extraordinarily important to us. And you must get your head around it, and I'm going to try to help. I, I also want to ask the indulgence of uh, some of the leading scholars who are here. As I speak, they're going to say, I wrote that already. Uh, <laughs> and uh, to them I say, gentlemen, I have learned from you. And beyond that, when I myself visited the sources, I found your arguments confirmed. So when you hear me saying things which you have already said, you should accept it as a testament to the solidity of your scholarship. <laughs> the place to start is not with Madison, but with the concept of sovereignty, an abstraction, an intellectual invention, that complicated discussions of American federalism in the founding era and has the exact same effect today. The modern concept of sovereignty goes back to the 16th century French theorist Jean Baudin. Anxious to define the basis of order in a society divided into different social orders, provinces, communities, corporations, and, above all, religions, Baudin found his answer in the existence somewhere within the state of a single sovereign power to which all other entities were necessarily subordinate. Sovereign power, he insisted, had to be single and indivisible, perpetual and absolute, that is, free of all limitations and of any subjection. Baudin loaded that, uh, located that sovereign authority in the king. Although the need for some sovereign authority within a state became something of a political truism in Britain as well as in continental Europe, its locus was open to debate. During the divisions that racked 17th century England, different pamphleteers claimed sovereignty for the king, the two houses of parliament, the commons alone, the law, even the people. In the end, with the revolution of 1688-89, the British settled on an answer. Sovereignty lay in the king in parliament. That is, in the king acting in conjunction with the lords and commons. 
that distribution of sovereignty among king, lords, and commons supposedly prevented abusive extensions of power by any one of the three, and so protected English liberty. Parliamentary sovereignty therefore became a constitutional principle in 18th century Britain, but it wasn't exactly popular among American colonists of the 1760s and 1770s. If Parliament was sovereign, it could act as it chose without restriction, and so could bind the colonists in all cases whatsoever, as the Declaratory Act of 1766 asserted. There was no midway, no saying this far and no further. Sovereignty was by definition unlimited and indivisible. As a result, there was as Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson told the Massachusetts General Court in 1773, no line that can be drawn between the supreme authority of Parliament and the total independence of the colonies. Well, if that's the choice, the colonists could only choose independence, since to them, unlimited authority was tyranny. As Madison later put it, the assertion by Great Britain of a power to make laws for the other members of the empire in all cases whatsoever ended in the discovery that she had a right to make laws for them in no cases whatsoever. The Americans nonetheless continued to accept the old idea that every form of government needed to have somewhere a supreme, irresistible, absolute, uncontrolled authority in which the rights of sovereignty reside, and that that authority was indivisible. The function of sovereignty was to assure order, and order was a pressing issue in a new nation that had no king to command obedience, and in which the willingness of the people both to rule and to be ruled remained unproven. But where could such indivisible ultimate authority be safely placed in a free republic? Uh, the conventional answer, and probably I found myself repeating it once upon a time until I thought about it, is that with independence, sovereignty passed to the separate states. That's what the court's been saying. But in fact, the sovereignty of the states between 1776 and the ratification of the Constitution in 1788 is now and was always open to very serious question. The colonies formed states with written constitutions only under the direction of the Continental Congress. And from at least 1775, the Congress had acknowledged responsibility over foreign affairs and several other tasks that are normally characteristic of a sovereign nation. The Articles of Confederation, which were ratified only in 1781, almost five years after the Declaration of Independence, said that each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. But that was quite a reservation. The powers the articles assigned to the United States in Congress assembled were substantial. 
It had, for example, the sole and exclusive right and power of determining on peace and war, of sending and receiving ambassadors, and of entering into treaties and alliances. Could the several states be sovereign if they were subject to such profound limits on their authority? During debates in the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Rufus King of Massachusetts said, no, the states under the Confederation are not sovereign states, he argued, because they lack the critical powers of war and peace. The Articles of Confederation even limited their exercise of power domestically by giving Congress the power to regulate the value of both state and federal coinage, for example. Madison agreed with King. The states never possessed the essential rights of sovereignty, he said. These were always vested in Congress. The states were only great corporations having the power of making bylaws, and even there, only if they are not contradictory to the general confederation. But since the Confederation Congress was unable to enforce its rights under the Articles, the states acted as if they were free from all constraint. In a memo composed in April of 1787, which I gather Jack Rakoff went through in some detail uh, this morning, Madison cited misconduct on the part of the states. Uh, as a leading vices of the American political system. They'd refused to comply with requisitions. They'd encroached on federal authority. They had violated the rights of other states and the rights of nation. They passed laws all the time, and often they were unjust, and then they just repealed them and passed another one equally bad. Uh, these were big problems, he said, and the only way to remedy these vices was a modification of sovereignty, and he favored investing more effective and extensive power in a well-structured central government to which the states would be clearly subordinate. It was absolutely necessary, he wrote Washington in mid-April 1787, that the national legislature have a negative, that is a veto, in all cases whatsoever, on the legislative acts of the states, as heretofore exercised by the kingly prerogative, a conviction he retained even after the convention rejected the proposal. He also advocated giving Congress power, as the Virginia, plans, Virginia plan said, to call forth the force of the Union against any member of the Union failing to fulfill its duty uh, under the Constitution though he willingly abandoned that provision once he realized it essentially uh, would have uh, institutionalized civil war. Uh, not a good thing. Uh, Madison wanted seats in both houses of Congress to be allocated in proportion either to the state's free population or the amount of tax revenue they generated. Uh, he surely didn't want them to have equal representation in the Senate although he denied that equal state representation in the old Confederation Congress implied that, as sovereign powers, the states were equal to each other. The state of Maryland voted by counties, he noted. Did this make the counties sovereign? Over the several months in which it met, the federal convention extended and revised the Virginia plan adopting provisions sometimes with firm convictions of their wisdom 
and sometimes more tentatively, and sometimes simply from a need to compromise contrary positions that would otherwise scuttle the whole effort to create a more perfect union. The net result was far from the coherent vision Madison had brought to the convention, and he left that meeting unconvinced that the Constitution could either effectively answer its national object or prevent the local mischiefs which everywhere excite disgusts against the state governments. But taking Franklin's advice to doubt a little of his own fallibility, and like Franklin, conscious that no better Constitution was likely to be proposed, he threw his efforts wholeheartedly, as we all know, into getting the Constitution ratified. No doubt Madison's thinking matured in the course of the convention, and also, as Lance Banning argues, while writing his contributions to the Federalist Papers, in which he struggled both to justify and to make intellectual sense of a plan of government that was, as he said, neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. The positions he took there in essays written and published with extraordinary haste were enduring. Four decades later, Madison could still cite his Federalist essays as statements of his views which I think confirms his claim for long-term consistency. But it wasn't Madison, but his colleague, uh, the Pennsylvanian James Wilson, who explained most clearly the location of sovereignty in the new American compound republic. He did so in answering anti-federalists in the Pennsylvania ratifying convention who had accused the Constitution of creating a consolidated government, one of those anti-federalist buzz, buzz terms, uh, who, uh, consolidated government whose powers would overwhelm and destroy the sovereignty of the separate states. Wilson did that essentially by denying that the state governments had any sovereignty to lose. In all governments, whatever their form, however they may be constituted, Wilson said, repeating the standard wisdom, there must be a power established from which there is no appeal, which is therefore called absolute, supreme, and uncontrollable. The only question is, where is that power lodged? Within the American Republic, he argued, supreme power lay in no institution or set of institutions, but in the people whose power was paramount to every constitution, inalienable in its nature, and indefinite in its extent. The people, the source of all power, could distribute one portion of power to the more contracted circle called state governments. This is, these are Wilson's words. They can also furnish another portion to the government of the United States. But the people, quote, never part with the whole. They retain the right of, re and they retain the right of recalling what they part with. A sovereignty remained, therefore, undivided. And beyond the people, there could be no appeal. Such sovereign power did not reside in the states as governments, 
since such sovereign power did not reside in the states as governments, they had no sovereignty to lose under the Constitution. Sovereignty resided, Wilson repeated, in one speech after another at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, in the people who remained sovereign even after delegating power in such proportions, to such bodies, on such terms, and under such limitations as they think proper. Wilson's conception of the proposed Constitution, I think, to use a rather more uh, immediately comprehensible analogy, was like that of a household in which a woman might hire, oh, a maid or, say, a cook and a gardener and give them separate defined responsibilities without compromising in the least her superior authority over them. Wilson's argument built on a century and more of British Whig thought that had affirmed the popular foundations of political authority and upon the Americans' emergent understanding of constitutions as direct acts of legislation by the people who exercised their sovereign powers through specially elected conventions coming from similar intellectual and constitutional experiences, Madison offered suggestions of the same conception in his Federalist Papers. In number 39, for example, he emphasized that the Constitution would be founded on the assent and ratification of the people of America, given by deputies elected for that specific purpose within the distinct and independent states to which they respectfully, respectively belong. Its enactment depended, therefore, not upon the decision of a majority of the people of the Union, nor from that of a majority of the states, but upon the assent of the supreme authority in each state, the authority of the people themselves. Since each state in ratifying the Constitution is considered, he wrote, a sovereign body independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act, the new Constitution would be, in that regard, federal, not national. On the other hand, it would be national in that its authority would be enforced on individuals, not states. Under the Constitution, he added, the jurisdiction of the central government extends to certain enumerated objects only and leaves to the several states a residuary and inviolable sovereignty over all other objects. Later, he referred to the state's extensive portion of active sovereignty, apparently distinguishing, at least that's how I read it, the implementation of powers delegated by the people, i.e. active sovereignty, from what Wilson had identified as the people's fundamental sovereign powers. But Madison's argument in Federalist 39 was not the same as Wilson's. Uh, both men were responding to charges that the Constitution created a consolidated government, but Madison did that not by focusing on the location of sovereignty, but by demonstrating that the Constitution had federal as well as national components. In fact, I think Madison's clearest statement on this issue is not in the Federalist Papers at all. It came uh, a decade or 11 years later. Uh, in a report that he wrote for the Virginia legislature to answer criticisms of the uh, Virginia resolutions of 1798, which had been passed against the Alien and Sedition Acts. 
actually Madison had written those resolutions, so defending them was no doubt very dear to his heart. Uh, on the surface of them, uh, on a quick reading, you might think those resolutions claimed uh, that the states, uh, uh, state legislatures to be more precise, had power to judge the constitutionality of congressional acts. Uh, they said, for, uh, and this is the really critical passage, in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of powers not granted to the federal government under the Constitution, the states who are parties thereto have the right and are in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of evil and for maintaining within their respective limits the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them. Virginia sent its resolutions to other state legislatures uh, confident, as they said, that they will agree and concur in declaring that the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional and that the necessary and proper measures will be taken uh, by each for cooperating with Virginia in maintaining unimpaired the authorities, rights, and liberties reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Uh, they were, they misjudged the situation rather badly because those states that responded were uh, anything but uh, ready to concur uh, on the Virginia uh, resolutions. Uh, I, some of them just dismissed them out of hand. Uh, they're almost comic. The, the Delaware House of Representatives pronounced the Virginia resolutions a very unjustifiable interference with the general government and constituted authorities of the United States and of such a dangerous tendency that they were not fit subjects for further consideration. <laughs> Other states, uh, several other, in fact, said that, uh, no, no, this isn't the job of the states. The Supreme Court is supposed to decide issues of constitutionality. Uh, and in fact, there is some very interesting evidence that Madison himself, uh, really not too long after the resolutions were passed, had some reservations about them, or more precisely, about having the legislature pass those resolutions. Have you ever considered thoroughly the distinction between the power of the state and that of the legislature on questions relating to the federal pact? He asked Thomas Jefferson on December 29, 1798. That's just a week after the Virginia legislature had passed its resolutions. On the supposition that the former is clearly the ultimate judge of infractions, it does not follow that the latter is the legitimate organ, especially as a convention was the organ by which the compact was made. Uh, from that insight came both a way of justifying, or if you like, explaining away the Virginia resolutions and a powerful restatement and extension of James Wilson's pronouncement on sovereignty in the American Republic. How, to begin with, could Madison explain the Virginia Resolution statement that the states are parties to the Constitution? The word states, he said, has several very different meanings, and we confuse them with each other, but we shouldn't. It sometimes refers to territories occupied by particular political societies, the land, so to speak. 
On other occasions, it refers to the particular governments established by the, those societies, or alternatively, to the societies organized into those particular governments. Finally, the word can refer to, quote, the people composing those political societies in their highest sovereign capacity. Only in that sense were the states sovereign, since in the United States the people, not the government, possess the absolute sovereignty. And since states as communities of sovereign people were parties to the Constitution, they were of necessity the rightful judges in the last resort, whether the bargain has been pursued or violated. Those who said the Supreme Court had exclusive jurisdiction over constitutional issues ignored a very important fact, Madison said, the fact that the judicial department also may exercise or sanction dangerous powers beyond the grant of the Constitution. And for that reason, the sovereign people's right to judge violations of the Constitution must extend to violations by one delegated authority as well as by another, by the judiciary as well as by the executive or the legislative. The people were not, however, to exercise that power hastily or on occasions that were of a light and transient nature or obscure and doubtful in construction, but only against, as the resolution said, a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of unconstitutional powers. In this instance, the Virginia legislature called on the states only to interpose for the arresting the progress of the evil. The legislature, moreover, was emphatically not the people in their highest sovereign capacity. The people exercise their sovereign capacity only through specially elected conventions, and a legislature isn't a convention. All the legislature had done was to appeal to fellow state governments, which were intermediate between the sovereign people and the general government, and to ask their, these other states to join in a protest against the unconstitutional acts of Congress, which is, of course, a perfectly normal thing to do. The legislature had not even suggested to its sister states what further measures might be necessary and proper, such as petitioning Congress to rescind the objectionable laws. So what, in short, was all the fuss about? It was a terrific save, as they say in the sports world. Unfortunately, those who later looked back with favor on the Virginia resolutions, as well as the less restrained uh, uh, Kentucky resolutions that Jefferson drafted, turned out to be more troubling to Madison than the resolution's critics. The poor man spent the last decade of his life denying that the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions provided a precedent for state nullification of federal laws, as John C. Calhoun and the South Carolinians insisted. On one point after another, he insisted in a torrent of letters and essays, those two actions were different. Virginians had protested clearly unconstitutional violations of freedom of speech and the press, of rights that lay at the foundation of a free society, 
not anything so clearly within Congress's delegated power as a tariff law that favored manufacturers. Nor did the Virginia Resolution suggest that a single state could interpose in its sovereign capacity to block enforcement of an act of Congress. Instead, they referred repeatedly to states in the plural, since opposition demanded cooperation among several states who were parties to the Constitutional Compact. Virginia, moreover, endorsed extreme measures only in the last resort. After all, alternatives had failed. And by the 1830s, Madison had substantial confidence in the capacity of American institutions to solve their own problems, much more confidence than he had had three decades earlier. Maybe uh, a period in the White House didn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> but this goes beyond that. The threat posed by the Alien and Sedition Acts had been put down through the ballot box, he noted. And the Supreme Court now seemed a suitable arbiter or umpire in deciding questions concerning the boundaries of right and power. The day had passed when sitting judges indulged in intemperate party harangues. And the Supreme Court was no longer uh, a solid Federalist enclave as it had been at the time of the Virginia Resolutions. Although occasional decisions from the bench had incurred serious and extensive disapprobation, Madison was ready to conclude in 1830 that with but few exceptions, the course of the judiciary had been hitherto sustained by the predominant sense of the nation. In that affirmation of the judiciary, he looked back past the report of 1800 to his original affirmation in Federalist 39 of the court's role as arbiter of ju jurisdictional disputes between the states and the nation. Some defenders of nullification suppose that the state governments were parties to the constitutional compact. That, Madison insisted, was a fundamental error. I wonder what he'd say about Alden B. Maine. Well, I'll get to that. <laughs> the real parties to the Constitutional Compact of the U.S. are the states, that is, the people thereof, respectively, and their sovereign character, and they alone. As he recalled, the resolutions of 1798 and the Virginia Report of 1800 declared, since the Constitution is a compact among the states in their highest sovereign capacity and constituting the people thereof, uh, one people for what certain purposes, it is not revocable or alterable at the will of the states individually. In ratifying the Constitution, the people of the various states had made themselves collectively one people for certain purposes, which meant the Constitution and laws passed by Congress under its authority could not be altered or uh, annulled at the will of the states individually as the Constitution of a state may be. The nullifiers were guilty of a colossal heresy, one that promised to make the majority hostage to a minority, and so to upset the entire constitutional order. Of course, in the ultima ratio, uh, which when, when deprived of rights essential to safety and happiness, individuals could exercise their right of revolution and shake off the yoke of oppression. But in controversies between the states and the general government, as he kept referring to the nation, 
the awful consequences of a final rupture and dissolution of the Union should never for a moment be lost sight of. Once the Union was dissolved, the impossible, impossibility of ever renewing it was brought home to every mind by the difficulties encountered in establishing it. The happy union of these states is a wonder, he wrote, their constitution a miracle, their example the hope of liberty throughout the world. Woe to the ambition that would meditate the destruction of either. By the 1830s, the principle that sovereignty lay not in state governments but in the people of a state was widely accepted, not only by nationalists like Madison but radical Jeffersonians such as Virginia St. George Tucker. South Carolinians passed their nullification ordinance in a specially elected convention of the people. And some 30 years later, it would again be conventions of the sovereign people, not state legislatures, that adopted the South's ordinances of secession. The prospect of disunion had filled Madison with fear. Was he perhaps witnessing a logical outcome of Wilson's argument made some 40 years earlier that the people never part with the whole of their sovereignty, that they retain the right of recalling what they part with? Was it necessary to insist, like the nullifiers, that sovereignty remained whole with the sovereign people of the separate states? In 1835, at age 84, Madison composed an essay in which he pronounced, perhaps heretically, but quite sensibly, that the sovereignty of the people, quote, was in its nature divisible and was in fact divided. It, it could be divided, he pointed out, by separating off one community of sovereign people from another, making two sovereign communities, Kentucky from Virginia, Maine from Massachusetts. And of course, the sovereign people had invested separate parcels of authority, of sovereign authority in the state and national governments. The doctrine that he said that sovereignty is in its nature indivisible depended on theoretical guides and technical language rather than the plain terms of the Americans' constitutional compact. In fact, he said, it was difficult to argue intelligibly concerning the compound system of government in the United States without admitting the divisibility of sovereignty between the union and the members composing the union. Nor, come to think of it, was sovereignty absolute, extending to all cases whatsoever certain rights of individuals, of conscience, for example, were, he said, beyond the legitimate reach of sovereignty, wherever vested or however viewed. The compound government of the United States, he had observed a few years earlier, is without a model and to be explained by itself, not by similitudes or analogies or, it seemed, outdated principles of political science. And so Madison continued the work of his generation, thinking through the meaning of the American Republic 
rejecting what was irrelevant for the past. Finally, a year before his death, in his essay on sovereignty, he bid farewell to Jean Baudin. Okay, Alden v. Maine. If the states as governments are not, and were not sovereign, they can hardly have an immunity from prosecutions stemming, uh, stemming from their non-existent sovereignty. And insofar as the states exercise sovereign powers delegated to them by the people, their active sovereignty does not include powers that the people delegated to Congress under the Constitution. Thus, as Justice David Souter noted in his dissenting opinion, the flaw in the court's opinion and in the court's appeal to federalism, the state of Maine is not sovereign with respect to the Fair Labor Standards Act. In fact, the whole concept of sovereign immunity is, as Justice Felix Frankfurter said in 1946, an anachronistic survival of monarchical privilege, since it derives from the Crown's immunity to prosecution in British courts without its consent. What place can such a concept have in a nation that rejected monarchy in 1776 and insisted that henceforth everyone, governors and governed alike, would be equally bound by the laws? To revive the concept required some very interesting, complicated arguments on the part of the court, since the Constitution does not once use the word sovereign. Nor did James Madison in a statement from the Virginia Ratifying Convention that the court cites. In discussing federal court jurisdiction, he simply noted without explanation that it is not in the power of individuals to call any state into court. The 11th Amendment, passed in 1798, which the court has interpreted as freeing states from a broad range of suits, specifically exempted states from suits brought by citizens of another state or by citizens of any foreign state, and did so, again, without using the word sovereign or immunity. The founding era, therefore, gives plenty of evidence that the states can be freed from private suits, if that's what you want to do, without resort to state sovereignty, which, however understood, has played a peculiarly nasty role in American history, one that we had every reason to think was thankfully put to rest at Appomattox Courthouse. In perpetuating the concept, or reviving, I would say, the concept of state sovereignty, the court also joins some rather bizarre bedfellows. Although it has responsibility for maintaining the Constitution, it finds natural allies among anti-federalists who oppose the Constitution's ratification in the first place. Uh, that, I think, is why the court's opinion in Alden v. Maine regularly cites the ratifying conventions of Rhode Island, North Carolina, and New York, and I sometimes think the clerks that wrote it didn't know that they were all anti-federalist strongholds. <laughs> but I know it. I know you know it. <laughs> it also seems to side with 19th century states writers who disputed the court's ultimate jurisdiction in constitutional questions against those who, like Madison, argued with one brief exception, on behalf of the court's right to decide even disputes over state and federal jurisdiction, which the nullifiers specifically denied. 
Of course, state sovereignty is today free from its association with nullification and secession. Uh, the court is using it to rectify a supposed imbalance between the federal and state governments within a nation whose stability is no longer in doubt. Indeed, as this paper suggests, or talk, whatever you want to call it, state sovereignty, as the court is using it, has no relationship to state sovereignty as it was understood historically by James Madison and uh, a series of other profound constitutional commentators of the early republic. We might even characterize it as a new intellectual invention but one that is already firmly embedded in American constitutional law. The fundamental so-called 11th Amendment immunity of states to prosecution that's posited in this week's decision depends upon earlier court decisions that extended state immunity to suits brought by uh, citizens of other states which the 11th Amendment explicitly provides to suits by their own citizens because of the state's so-called sovereignty, which, again, neither the Constitution nor the 11th Amendment mentions. Moreover, this week's decision undercuts Congress's ability to enforce the 14th Amendment, which moves us beyond disgruntled probation officers in the state of Maine to basic civil liberties. And if you read the decision that was in the New York Times yesterday, you may have noticed Justice Rehnquist's opinion reminded us that in City of Bern v. Flores, 1997, the court, quote, confirmed the long-settled principle that it is uh, that it has the response, pardon me, that it is the responsibility of this court, not Congress, to define the substance of constitutional guarantees. You know, as I reflect on that, I, could, I, I ask myself, could it be that the sovereignty we're dealing with here is not really state sovereignty, that there's, there's a form of sovereignty that's understandable in traditional terms, that is an authority beyond which there is no appeal, uh, that's being invested not in the states uh, but in the court? Uh, and if so, we may be in a situation where the rebalancing of power between the states and the nation is less pressing uh, than a rebalancing of power among uh, the legislative, judicial, and the executive. I have to say, though, that the court has one card in its uh, in its hand that it, it you know I can't take it away from it. Uh, they're right. In the 81st Federalist Paper, Alexander Hamilton said that under the new Constitution, states would not lose, lose the immunity from suits by individuals that they enjoyed as one of the attributes of sovereignty. <laughs> but it is it's really curious, because far from being a general supporter of state power, Hamilton genuinely favored a consolidated government and would have preferred to destroy the states altogether, except perhaps, perhaps as administrative units of the nation. He was not, it seems, so careful in what he said in his desperate effort to get uh, New York to ratify the Constitution, which was the purpose of the Federalist Papers. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't an owner's manual like the thing in your glove compartment with the new car. Uh, and clearly he was uh, nowhere so consistent in his arguments as was his colleague, James Madison. 
On the other hand, in conclusion, say maybe we need Hamilton. Maybe if he didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. Uh, he makes interpreting the past a bit less cut and dried. Truth in history, even as presented in this paper, is almost always open to dispute, which might uh, make its use in deciding uh, constitutional issues more difficult. But it is why history is so endlessly fascinating. Thank you. All right. I'm told two questions, you and you. <laughs> what are the implications of the Internet on sovereignty, both nationally and internationally? I pass. Two more. <laughs> I don't know. That's big. I can't. Sir, I couldn't begin to answer it. <laughs> I could say it's not my field. Right? <laughs> okay. What would Madison say today about our latest presidential election and the Supreme Court stopping uniform standards in recounting the votes of the people of Florida? I, I would not ever put myself in the position that one of the people who testified by, before the uh, House Judiciary Committee in the impeachment proceedings did, of, of being able to hear, as you know, in a seance, the voice of Madison on <laughs> various things. But, it, it, you know, I have to say in reflecting this, it did strike me that the court is asserting uh, this extraordinary range of powers uh, and undercutting congressional power at a time where its partisan character is, is very pronounced. It's very difficult to think of this without some analogy to the court that, whose authority Madison disputed in the 1790s, which was a Federalist court. Of course, uh, the judges today behave better, none of these you know, wild harangues. Uh, and I, I, I guess if I'm going to be concerned, I can't say what Madison says. I say there's some parallel in the problems uh, that we confront and that he confronted at that point, although our problem isn't quite so extreme, although we may be getting there. Really, once you start cutting at, at equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment and at Congress's right, as the fifth section of the 14th Amendment says, to pass laws to implement those rights, uh, you have to ask where they're going next. Right? Okay. Uh, considering provisions of the Constitution like diversity jurisdiction, uh, privileges and immunities in the anti-out-of-state discrimination clauses of the Commerce Clause, uh, do you think that maybe the Constitution is much more concerned with protecting states from out-of-state people and not states from their own people? And maybe the 11th Amendment doesn't cover that uh, state being sued by one of its own people simply because it was so implied in the rest of the Constitution that the federal government wouldn't be dealing with that. I find the court's arguments in extending the interpretation of the 14th Amendment to use plain language flaky in the extreme. Um, I actually, you know, it's very nice. We can all do this if we're interested, um, thanks to the Internet. We all become legal uh, experts. Findlaw.com, it says for legal professionals, but they don't ask for your credentials before they give you what you want. Uh, the, the, this new interpretive 
tendency, as I understand it, goes back to Hans v. Louisiana in 1890. And they do, you know, and then there are a whole series of much more recent interpretations that, have, you know, have expanded this. But the, oh, how could they do it? All the 11th Amendment says is they won't, can't be sued by, you know, citizens of other states. They say they must have meant their own citizens as well. And that's a function of their sovereignty. Oh, you know, they've just read a tremendous amount of meaning. And then what the court does is to make an assertion like the sovereignty the states had before the ratification of the Constitution, which is highly problematical historically, as I tried to say. They say it, and then in the next case, they cite the flaky statement from the, pre the historically questionable statement from a previous case as if they're having said it, it's an established truth. So you get this bizarre building of uh, unsubstantiated arguments, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, I think it's highly questionable. I question it. We all have a right to question it. It's a free country. <laughs> yeah. Commerce without taxation. I don't. Not sure. I follow you. <laughs> That's a problem, right? <laughs> Yeah. See, repeat it again, and maybe we'll all get it this time. <laughs> In very simple terms, we talked about taxation without representation as a political constitutional process. We are emerging to a situation where you're going to have global and national commerce without the ability of the states to deal with taxation, particularly on sales tax. Yeah. And this is a big issue on the Conference of Governors every okay. single time they get together. So you're talking about exchanges, for example, via the Internet or with the global economy and in I'm general. How do you reconcile the rights of, of – well, we were, there is a sovereign state. We talk about sovereigns in the international world without an awful lot of difficulty. We know what it means. A sovereign state is under no higher authority. Uh, but the question is how the rights of sovereign states – can be recognized in a global economy, and I don't know. It's already being recognized by bypassing taxation. Okay. Well, I want to ask you all to uh, join me in thanking Pauline for this wonderful paper. And I want to call the session to a halt because we need to give you a break so that we can begin exactly at 4 o'clock with the summary panel. We'll expect you all back in your seats then.
I'll be in trouble. <laughs> okay. I don't think it's fair to say it was through the 
Afternoon. It's Friday afternoon after all four o'clock. Uh, so. Thank you, everyone. We'll do that. Yeah. How long have you been in the program? Oh, a long time now. Uh, almost 16 years since I left here. I taught here first at Princeton mm -hmm. and then uh, in Farman. Mm -hmm. Now I have a joint appointment in the Oh, yeah. Okay. The department. So, yeah, it's great. Just talking to somebody here who's from some constitutional center, eager to put together materials so that our educational purpose and to encounter. But I do think you know these issues of international trade and international law well, issues. Well, we'll get in. Yeah, if that comes up, then well. Yeah, really good. No, no, because I actually think, now I can't remember who 
But you said this earlier today, earlier, whether it was something you had said, I think it was, that but, uh, the, the simple version is I actually think that some of Canada's developments are so confident of their system and the deference to the American They didn't get nervous in the way the Americans did. And so I then, the, 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 oh, thank you very much. I organized the blow, blow. So you're taking back this? No, it's well, that Canada was had more participatory democracy. They got way back in the 60s. Protest oh. against Ross Barnett's appearance right. on the campus. Is that right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm in the company now. now. Takes me back. I would end, you know, on a crude measure. Long and distinguished. They have 50% yes, more voting participation than yes. we do. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. not nothing, right? No, no. But um, I consider that the least. Yes, yes. That's a formal kind of measure of democracy. Formal kind, but, but it's, it's the minimum, you know, from which you go. Yeah, I, I, think be, I think it'd be tough. Can I, ask, can, can I ask the meeting to come to order, please? We thought that it would be a good idea to conclude the daytime portion of the program. Uh, with a panel so that you would get a chance to hear a little more of each of the speakers uh, and also to introduce you to uh, an additional uh, attraction, which I'll do in just a moment. Uh, we'll go for about an hour till about uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, for those of you who are going to the, uh, who are registered for the meals, the reception will be at 5.45 in the multipurpose room uh, where we had lunch earlier today. The dinner itself will be at 6.15, and then we'll be back here shortly before 8 o'clock for the evening le lecture by Justice Scalia. And uh, I, want, I need to say to you, I've been instructed to say to you, that you will need your badge to get in um, tonight. There are going to be a great many people in various capacities, and uh, we, we are only going to admit people with badges on, so please, uh, please wear your badge, because it's very important that we are efficient and orderly uh, tonight. I think I was also asked to say that there are going to be additional shuttles uh, after this event for those of you who are trying to get back to the parking, so I, we think it won't be a problem. And also, I'm told, in the evening, too. So we should have plenty of shuttles for those of you uh, who do need help in getting back uh, to, your, to your car. Is there anything else, John? Okay. Well, our added attraction um, is, the, uh, is Lloyd Axworthy, uh, who is famous uh, in this town because he is a graduate alumnus uh, of Princeton University. And we're delighted to have him back uh, today. And he's really here because he has to be here tomorrow when he is going to be the, uh, awarded the 2001 uh, Madison Medal uh, here. Uh, this is a medal given each year uh, by the graduate school for an alumnus or alumna who has had a distinguished career, has advanced the cause of graduate education, or has achieved a record of outstanding public service. And Mr. Axworthy has done both. Uh, so he's uh, a particularly appropriate uh, awardee of this award. As many of you will know, until very recently, he was the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, in Canada uh, and had a notable uh, career there uh, in a great many ways, uh, but including his concern with the uh, landmine treaty 
in which he was one of the uh, principal players that is uh, leading to the uh, Ottawa Treaty uh, on landmines. And he's also been um, prominent in the movement for an international uh, criminal court. Um, he studied here uh, from 61 to 63, got his degree here in 1972, and along the way uh, he managed to start his teaching. He taught both at Winnipeg and at Middlebury uh, College, never too far from the border. Uh, but he was also very much involved in American affairs when he was here. He was a marcher for civil rights um, in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and he tells me that he's in fact been a, he is rather experienced organizer of protests, so we may have to call upon him for his expertise. In any case, uh, he was appointed foreign minister in uh, 1996. He has now completed that tour and he's moved to uh, the University of uh, British Columbia, Columbia in Vancouver, uh, and we're really delighted to have him here today. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Cates, and uh, thank you very much for uh, hanging out here till 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I can't rem remember ever in my memory that McCosh Hall was filled at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Uh, I will say, if I might, just uh, give a small footnote to history uh, to President Shapiro. Uh, I was uh, back in those days when uh, the Civil Rights Movement was an active uh, force here. Um, Governor Ross Barnett from Mississippi was invited to, to the campus to say a few words, and a group of us decided, I guess as other students still do, to organize the, uh, a counter-protest just to show our views. And the point of the story is that I remember very well the uh, fear of God that was struck in me when President Goheen at the time said, look, we don't mind a counter-protest, but if they get outside of the hand and you walk on the flowers around Alexander Hall, you're all going to be out of here. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if that applies today or not, Harold. But uh, um, I, I want to first begin by uh, natural apologies. I'm, as Professor Castro said, making this uh, transition from 28 years in political life to the, back to the academy, and so I'm still having to rewire my circuits to get away from 30-second clips and actually learn to speak in sentences again. Um, so I, I defer very deeply to the members of the panel who are learned scholars in this area, particularly in, in the area of James Madison, because when I, when Dr. Shapiro called me several months ago and said I'd been given this award and that one of the expectations I should make some commentary about James Madison, uh, the only thing that came to mind was I remembered that we, meaning us in the empire, burned down the White House when he was the president. Uh, and, uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't think that was a particularly good way to start off a, a talk to an American audience, however. So, however, I since discovered I was uh, sort of suggesting to one of my classmates who called me up to sort of uh, congratulate me. He said, no, look at it. He said, you're in the age of political correctness now. He said, you realize that because of the burning, Dolly Madison had to run and save George Washington's portrait and therefore became an American heroine, and that was probably the beginning of the feminist movement in the United States. So we will take full credit for that along the way, if we might. I, I wanted to, if I could, uh, I know your panel has a, a number of things they want to talk about. I'd like, just like to, if I could, uh, uh, make a, really two questions or challenges or, or observations. 
uh, I've, of course, I'm totally and completely sort of unhindered by having known what they said, but in politics, you never get confused by the facts anyway. So uh, I, I'm going to come at this sort of out of left field or right field, whichever way I'm standing in front of you and, and you're viewing it. But first, uh, I did want to comment about uh, the, the famous, perhaps the most singular, notable sort of reflection of Madison in terms of the Federalist Papers number 10 on the whole role of factions and groups and how the diversity can be managed in a large uh, state because that is the one way to make sure that there is a check and balance and that, that nobody can predominate. Uh, that is a, has been and continues to be, perhaps uh, for we Canadians, uh, a continuous debate, sometimes struggle and sometimes challenge, because it certainly has been the history of our own country, where in fact uh, we were formed by a, a very clear negotiation between uh, French-speaking settlers, uh, uh, later arrivals from Britain, and of course the First Nations people. And so uh, one of the issues that has always been of uh, matter to us in our own constitution and has certainly been a increasingly a major reflection in our court system uh, in the judgments on our Charter of Rights is how to balance between individual rights and group rights. And particularly in the last 10 years or so, and I, I think Jennifer can speak to this, but I'm really, because I know that she mentioned this morning, the whole demand to try to reconcile that balance. Uh, on Aboriginal rights, we have been engaged in an incredibly tough uh, and sometimes tortuous, but sometimes satisfi uh, satisfying uh, effort to recognize uh, the Aboriginal rights to their own territory, to their own jurisdiction, uh, to their own governance, without conceding their right to full self-determination or sovereignty. Uh, to the extent that we have, some of you would know, a few years back established a brand new territory in Canada run by our Aboriginal people called Nunavut. Uh, we're engaged in a very major series of uh, negotiations on land claims which carries with it not only just the possession of the land, but the right and responsibility. And in the west coast of British Columbia, where I am now located, a very famous uh, case has been decided, the Niska case, where in fact a group of Aboriginal people in the northwest corner of the province had been given a very large area of land where they exercised jurisdiction over many non-Aboriginals, and in fact become their governor. Now, as you can imagine, that creates a lot of, a sort of neuralgia with many of the majority. Uh, the same thing, of course, is true in the establishment of language rights in our Constitution. But I guess the, the, the difference, and I, I really want to raise it here because, if I may be so bold to observe, is that this question of group rights is one that you can no longer ignore. And, and while the United States Constitution has never given it acknowledgement, uh, I think the time has come when it will be a matter of some significance, certainly as the demographics of this country change and as the recognition of new language groups, Spanish-speaking groups, which now represent, what, 20 million people in this country and are establishing demands for separate schooling, language-based schooling and so on. We've all been through it. Uh, and I can tell you that it is, it's, well, it becomes Canada's second most popular indoor parlor game is how to deal with these matters. But it is very fundamental because, and this is where I'm going to take an extrapolation, this debate, this discussion, this negotiation over how you reconcile the question of individual rights and group rights goes very much to the heart of a number of the very crucial international issues which I dealt with over the past five years as foreign minister. It doesn't take a lot of sort of recollection to realize that the debate in Kosovo 
in Rwanda, in Somalia, and I can name you any other places, in which there are groups of people who are demanding that a political community be founded and based upon origin or blood, uh, is about the same kind of uh, question, I suppose, that Mr. Madison was facing almost 250 years ago. And how do you reconcile those issues within the notion of a politically sovereign state? And what kind of constitutional protections, what kind of rights do you provide, what kind of charter is there? And it seems to me so the extension of rights, the, the revolution in rights that we're going through, to use a phrase used by one of our Canadian writers, this revolution in rights uh, and, the, and the experience we've had in trying to wrestle with that issue is now extending itself internationally into a global system. And, and therefore, I, I suppose that is one of the questions I, I, I pose to Madison scholars about how they see, uh, if you like, the possibility of a form of international federalist papers to begin to come to grips with that particular kind of issue. Uh, now, you know, whether you can ever assemble the same kind of brilliance in one place that uh, Madison and his brothers, as according to the new, latest book, uh, were able to uh, bring together is another question. But let me also point it out in reflection of something that is probably equally serious, and that is not just on the question of ethnic cleansing or forming states based upon ethnicity or, or religion, but it also goes to the very broad question of international governance. Uh, said I've been very active in, as foreign minister in developing the Rome Statute and setting up the International Criminal Court. I just came from Washington today where we had a major debate uh, this morning at the Library of Congress on the question of free trade, where the debate was really between those who were saying, who were the purest and saying, free trade agreements, period, no, no if, buts, or maybes, where the case I was trying to argue, rooted in experience, is you can no longer ignore the international stakeholders, civil groups, NGOs, and others who are all saying we've got to be part of the decision making, we have to be part of the policy making, we have to have our rights recognized and, and developed, and yet our governance system internationally is so far behind the curve in incorporating that new reality that we simply do not have, if you like, any form of constitutional basis for beginning to acknowledge or how to deal with it. Uh, in November, I led the Canadian delegation to the Hague Convention, which is dealing with perhaps one of the most significant security issues of our time, global change. It is going to transform the world. It is transforming the world. The Hague Convention of 10,000 people is like Comedia del Art. I mean, you had people dressed up as whales and kind of other people throwing sandbags. You had a variety of environmental ministers sort of, uh, sort of deciding whether they're green, blue, or red. And it was not in any way designed to make a decision. And it was, when you think about it, to bring together this vast array of business interests, environmental interests, national interests, NGO interests, in this huge colloquium and expect some decision be, to be made uh, is really an act of fantasy and imagination. Where is Madison when we need him in terms of developing the capacity and the governance systems uh, enab to uh, enable us to form some form of governance? And it is particularly, I think, important in, for debate in this country where there is a, if I can be sort of bold to say, this tendency towards unilateralism as opposed to multilateralism and towards the notion of how do you combine which is the same debate that Mr. Madison and his friends went through, the whole state's rights versus national government, I think you're now seeing really being played out on the question of where's the balance between sovereign rights of nation states and the need for the international community to get its act together to begin governing on global-based issues. That's why we need, I think, an internationalist federalist paper. Thank you very much.
Well, I, Mr. Axworthy really didn't know what we wanted him to talk about until uh, about 12 minutes ago. I think you'll agree that was pretty good. Uh, but at, at this point, I simply want to uh, throw it open, and I would think that uh, we had to first respond to the challenge that has been put to us. Uh, and I'm, uh, the floor is open for anyone who wants to, to go first. Don't be shy. Jack. I think I'd like to say something about the group rights question, because, because in fact, it, it, it seems to me that it's more important to think, well, not to ask the question, where is Madison when we need him? He's always there for me, so I, so I don't worry about that. <clears throat> but uh, I think one of the things that we often don't recognize, or that is probably insufficiently appreciated about Madison, is uh, the source of his deep commitment to a liberal individualist notion of rights, which it seems to me would, would not rest easily with the conception of group rights to which you were alluding. Uh, I, I, when I read Canadian theorists, which is not often, but occasionally uh, I do, I am struck by the fact that the, the dialogue about group rights is obviously much more active north of the border than it is here. And I think the Quebec problem is, is the first example of that, but by no means the only one. Um, you know, Madison shared with Jefferson uh, a, uh, a deep commitment to the principle of freedom of conscience, which I think in many ways was a paradigmatic for his thinking about rights. Paradigmatic in the sense that it led him to think of rights, as we now do customarily, in which you want us to question, that rights are essentially attributes or properties of individuals. You know, the 18th century, I'll say, in, 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 <coughs> excuse me, at the midpoint of the 18th century, uh, if you ask the question, what is the general problem of constitutional rights? Uh, what's, what's the simplest, most elegant way to describe it? Uh, I, I think the standard answer would be that the problem of rights in general is how do you protect the people against the government? How do you protect the people perceived as a collective mass uh, outside of politics from the abuse of their fundamental rights by co the concentrated power of the state and especially by the monarchy? Madison, it seems to me, reformulates the problem of rights in several ways. Um, I think first and most important uh, from our perspective, that's to say from an American perspective, Madison says that, that that traditional formulation might be fine for a monarchy, but it's not going to make much sense for a republic, because in a republic, the people themselves rule. And so the problem of rights, as Madison comes to define it by 1786, 1787, is uh, not how do you protect the people against the state, or from the state, or from the concentrated part of the state, but rather, <coughs> how do you protect one segment of the people, which he alludes to explicitly as individuals or minorities, against the majority of the population who will act instrumentally through government? This is saying, you know, the real power, and this is, in a sense, this is not unlike Pauline's formulation of the Wilsonian theory of sovereignty, though, with a couple of variations. I mean, Madison's argument is, that the, the real authority in a republic is going to lie with the people themselves. And the real danger to rights is going to come from the majority imposing its interests, its passions, its opinions uh, on the minority. And then the question becomes, from the federalism perspective, well, where are these dangers going to be most, uh, most likely to arise? Uh, is, it will be the case that the national government or the states will be, will, is more likely to become the captive of factious majorities. And Madison's answer, of course, is the states are likely to be more dangerous uh, than the national government. Okay, that's a kind of general background thought, but it, you know, at the heart of Madison's thinking about rights, and I think what really best explains his, um, his commitment to the liberal individual notion of rights, 
was the very early commitment to freedom of conscience that I think he formed here, that he certainly was expressing very clearly by the time he went back to Virginia in the early 1770s. It's, it's the strongest statement of his political positions that he makes, even at the time when the American Revolution is breaking out, he's, he's more hung up on the fact that Virginia is arresting Baptist preachers than that the British are closing down the port of Boston. Now, where, does, where did Madison's ideas of rights come from? Well, I think the short answer is that he, with Jefferson, shared the kind of basic Lockean conception, <coughs> excuse me, that, that on matters of conscience, each of us, uh, I want to say almost of any age, but at least each of us as we attain maturity, is capable of forming for ourselves, deciding for ourselves, the relative truth claims of different kinds of religious creeds. And it really is a matter of conscience. And conscience is inherently an individual attribute. You know, Locke, you know, I think Locke laid this out you know, very well in, in, in his letter concerning toleration. But you know, Locke's basic position is that you know, at bottom, all religious beliefs are matters of opinion. And opinion and belief can never be coerced. Uh, outward conformity can be, uh, can be maintained by the state. But inner belief always remains a, you know, a property that we individually possess. And uh, you know, what, what set Madison and Jefferson apart from Locke is that they're willing to say that we don't, we, that we can, we, we don't need to have a regime only of toleration, which might not need to include, for example, Catholics, about whom Locke was quite skeptical, or atheists. But in fact, we can uh, extend a, re a regime of, of freedom of conscience to the entire society. Why? <laughs> because if we simply recognize that all beliefs are matters of, uh, that, that all religious beliefs are matters of a kind of interior me mental state and are matters of conscience, and we are always necessarily deciding them for ourselves, the individual really is the, the true category, the, the, the true rights bearer, the true holder of rights. So in a certain sense, what I'm trying to say in a rather roundabout way is it seems to me a notion, if, if, if you accept, as I do, I, I'm sure Professor Ketchum, I think, would share this view as well, and probably others here, that Madison's thinking about religion was in many ways, though not in every way, paradigmatic for his thinking about rights, and that that conception was distinctly individualistic. That individualist conception, in turn, rested, I think, on the, the very powerful Lockean understanding uh, of what is the essence of religious belief uh, and, and opinion. <coughs> Excuse me, that, that helps to demonstrate uh, why, if we think of Madison as a kind of founding theorist of the American conception of rights, why our tradition is so hostile to notions of group rights. That's to say, we always want to be free on our own, each of us individually, to decide which religious truth claims matter most for us, which ones we want to accept, which ones we want to reject, which ones we want to hold on to, which ones we want to exchange for some other. So I think it's one of the curious things that American Protestantism provides, in the especially in the 19th century, and Madison lives to see this, um, provides a very fruitful basis for denominations to compete with one another, for people to uh, actualize their decisions, to go from one denomination to the other, from one faith to the other, to lose faith, to regain it, and so on. But it, and, you know, and, and it certainly creates a proliferation of groups who might, in some sense, be thought of as exercising group rights. And yet, under the Madisonian formulation, the real rights bearer is never the group, but the individual is deciding which group he wishes to belong to. So that seems to be that, I mean, to kind of sharpen the point here, that's, you know, if what I'm trying to suggest here, if Madison is a founder, which obviously is, and certainly a leading theorist of American rights, uh, then it seems to me there is a, there's a, there's a sharp dis disjunction between the kind of conception of group rights, which is, you know, which, is, which for good reason uh, is so, uh, you know, is so much discussed today, and the original conception rooted in notions of freedom of conscience that he was propagating back then.
Well, I'd, I'd like to um, respond to some of Lloyd Axworthy's comments, but I, I after uh, the slur on uh, group rights, I really can't resist. Um, <laughs> uh, so, of course, I agree with you as a matter of history that there is a poverty in the American political tradition um, in uh, giving us the resources with which to think about group rights. And, and the way that, but the connection that I think helps for people steeped in the American uh, individualistic tradition is, is not to deny that the, at, in the first instance the bearers of rights are individuals but to ask what makes those rights possible and real. So, for example, the issues of rights to culture that, are, that arise not just with the issue of Quebec, but with Aboriginal peoples. Um, I, I just came from a week-long session at the law school at Toronto about uh, residential schools where uh, Native children, this happened here too, and you, I understand, will soon face some of the uh, large-scale lawsuits which we currently face. Uh, Aboriginal children who were forcibly removed from their families to be re-socialized into civilized Canadians um, and suffered a violent loss of culture and now are bringing suit on those grounds, which has not yet been recognized by the courts. But the right to language, the right to culture, how, however much those rights reside in an individual, they can only be protected by protecting communities. Right? You cannot hold a right to language or culture by yourself. And indeed, I think even the issue of the right to conscience is a very interesting example because it is the rare faith that doesn't create community for itself and believe that the pursuit and expression of faith within community is a crucial part of it. That what would it mean to protect the private right to conscience but provide none of the support that we have historically always provided to organized religions to facilitate the construction of community within which people can actually experience and act out and develop their individual faith. So I think it's very important. This is rare. The paper you heard from me earlier today actually made no mention of my most current interest, which is thinking about rights in relational terms. But so now I've managed to insert uh, a piece of it. But let me just try to, since I've taken the time for that, try to be brief in my response, though, about to some of the very interesting challenges Lloyd Axworthy posed. The first thing I want to say, because this picks up on these sovereignty issues that we were talking about earlier, is that I think there's an even broader version of the question before us, which is whether the whole notion of sovereignty, which arose in the context of nation states, now needs to be rethought that increasingly Canada is just the most obvious example of a state that is not a, na a nation state, right? It's widely recognized there are two founding nations, uh, the French and the English, and this particular formulation is especially offensive to the Aboriginal peoples who say there weren't two founding nations, there were many founding nations who formed treaties together in order to make the this, the emergence of this country possible and as we reconstruct Canadian constitutionalism we require a recognition not of the two founding nations but of the multinational nature of this Canadian state. It's not a request to withdraw, it's not a secession movement uh, on the Aboriginal 
uh, people's parts by and large. It's an a a requiring a reconception of how the sovereignty, partial divided sovereignty of multiple nations can work together in a cohesive way in a single state which nevertheless holds some sovereignty as a collectivity. Now, the, these issues of the, of the international world, which we touched on in various ways earlier today, I think is just crucial. And the, the first point is that, and I, I must say, I think one feels this more sharply in Canada than in the United States, that our participation in international agreements like, like NAFTA and GATT actually interfere with deeply held traditional aspects of sovereignty. So that in particular, in Canada, issues of our commitment to uh, social welfare in various ways, in the promotion of culture in various ways, are threatened by claims that the government has signed on to international trade agreements, which now interfere with the capacity of that same government to exercise its ordinary sovereignty in these other realms so that there's a, there's a very real transposition of our understanding of sovereignty as we enter into international agreements because of the economic clout that the U.S. Uh, holds in many of these agreements. You probably are not conscious of this on a daily basis in the same way that uh, Canadians are. But I think the real, the way in which Madison would welcome this invitation, I think, is to ask the question of how we can work towards genuine democratic accountability as we move into the importance of these international agreements. And that takes a couple of different forms. One is, what are the structures by which we hold the representatives of our government accountable democratically when they go off to negotiate? And that those paths are very unclear, and partly because many of these uh, international agreements are so highly technical. But also, uh, not just how do you make these, these international aggregations workable, um, but how do you set up within those um, emerging international structures new systems of accountability so that they can do the work they have to do of creating structures of economic, uh, international economic trade um, without losing democratic accountability. And at the moment, I think we're just collectively at a loss on this. And the kinds of things that I've heard of, I, I heard an interesting paper proudly proclaiming that big advances in the GATT procedures, adjudicative procedures, they're going to get some precedence and, and it'll be binding in various ways and there have been agreements to this, are so highly technical and kind of judicialized that although they work economically in terms of providing greater stability and predictability, they do virtually nothing for us in terms of the democratic accountability side. So that this old problem of how you do what we need to do for making property functional and commerce functional at this new global level without losing the accountability which we only know how to work out nationally um, is I think what the, the new Madison today would want to grapple with. Good. Thanks. Thanks, Jenny. I, I think I would like to uh, encourage now everybody to plunge in on anything. So if you've got a particular bee in your bonnet, somebody said something which you thought was awful or wonderful, why don't you tell us? Here are the audience. Well, first I want to give them a chance to interrogate one another, otherwise we'll turn to the audience. <laughs> oh, you mean us? Yes. You. John? Well, 
hearing how Madison's conception of rights is deemed to be sort of an adequate for modern needs, I follow the argument that has been put forward, uh, and of course Jack is absolutely right uh, about tracing uh, Madison's sensibility about rights to the religious liberty struggles in Virginia in the 1770s and the 1780s, uh, starting off from the right of conscience. But one thing that's never been mentioned uh, when the question of rights has come up, when Madison, uh, when the issue of a Bill of Rights came up to the Constitution, Madison, of course, opposed the Bill of Rights. And one of the reasons why he opposed the Bill of Rights was he said it is impossible to enumerate the rights that might need to be protected uh, in their requisite uh, amplitude. And he was afraid that if uh, a Bill of Rights listed certain rights, those rights that not, were not listed would thereby deemed uh, from there onwards not to be rights. And it's here we have the origins of the Ninth Amendment in the Constitution. And now I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an expert on the Ninth Amendment, and I well understand that the Ninth Amendment law, which I gather is a field, is a bottomless pit. But I'm wondering whether the Ninth Amendment, which is a very Madisonian part of the Constitution, might not be a platform from which some of these questions that have been raised about the inadequacy of Madison's conceptions of right might not, might not be built up and making a more relevant Madison who would answer some of Jennifer's concerns. Any takers on that? Okay. Well, you know, there, you know, there really is no law of the Ninth Amendment. You know, it remains the, you know, kind of the wild card joker of the Constitution. It's, you know, it's alluded to by uh, Justice uh, Douglas in the Griswold case. <coughs> Although, I mean, I, I have, I, I've often thought that one could, uh, in fact, develop interesting theories of constitutional rights, especially as they relate to modern notions of rights, such as, you know, right to privacy or you know, sexual rights, uh, perhaps a right to die under the concept of unenumerated rights uh, in, in the Ninth Amendment. Um, I, I want to come back, I think, a, a slight repose to, to Jenny here in, in that um, I, I, you know, I have a more radical vision of what Jefferson and, and Madison were up to. Um, th this will be terribly naive, and, and I don't think it's going to respond to your sensibilities, but uh, the part of me says that, you know, the world would be a much better place, uh, group rights, individual rights, whatever, uh, if each of us understood what I see as the essential correctness or truth of the Lockean, Madisonian, Jeffersonian formulation. As I say, I think, Locke, I think Locke got it right philosophically. Uh, in ter in, in, in ter the, it? The, it, the it being on, on the critical question of the relationship between the individual as the, as the rights bearer, especially in, in the realm of religion. And, you know, since when we're talking about group rights, so we talk about linguistic minorities often, but around the world we are often, more often talking about uh, groups which have a strong religious component. It seems to me that Jefferson and Madison's radical position, Jefferson himself says in, in, his, in, his, in the notes for his, his speeches at the Virginia Provincial Convention where he's first introducing the disestablishment legislation, he, he writes down a little bit from Locke and he says, this is good, but we can go further. This, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's basically what he says. We can go further. We can go further. We don't, have to, we don't have to stop at toleration. We can actually go to a kind of radical free exercise. We'll just get everybody to understand that their religious, all our religious beliefs are essentially matters of opinion. Once we accept, that all, once we accept the truth of that premise, <coughs> then, we need, then we needn't fight anymore about matters of religion and public policy. And I've often thought, you know, the world would be a much better place if that, you know, if, if that admittedly skeptical uh, position on the truth claims of religious belief 
were more generally appreciated and accepted. It would be a good way to get people to stop killing each other or persecuting each other in the name of the, their belief in the truth of their own religious convictions. Uh, now, I don't know how well this would work in Islamic societies and, you know, in the Middle East or, you know, Pakistan or Indonesia or whatever, but it seems to me there's a very profound insight there uh, that is underappreciated both by Americans and, I would argue, by the world more generally. I think I shouldn't talk anymore right now. Why don't we take I think, other yeah, questions I think and I'll, I, I'll answer them. I'll insert it. All right. <laughs> Unless yeah, we're a, still friends, <laughs> even though we just met. <laughs> Unless there's another question here, I'm going to go to the audience. Come on. Sure. Hmm? Yeah, about... Um, Can you wait just one minute? Because Mr. Axworthy wants to say something first. <laughs> no, I just want to, to, again, observe in this uh, formulation that... Um, Madison is a Lockean and that the source is individual rights. I think in philosophy and theory that's right, but he was also, as I read him, a long time back in A.T. Mason's class, he also was a very practical politician who wrote the Constitution on the run as he was making decisions and developed, I thought, a very workable system by which groups which he acknowledged were the form that human nature would lend itself into formulation into groups, a way of governing those groups, uh, which is almost a disconnect from the, quote, the uh, exalting individual rights by saying factions are going to dominate political life and therefore we have to find a way of ensuring that no one faction becomes predominant, i.e. the majority. And that, to me, is, is the political question or the governance issue. How do you begin to formulate where there is such an incredibly broad-based expression of group rights as part of the rights revolution that's taking place in the world, both in uh, democratic countries like ours, but also in many other countries, that you have to start writing constitutions that begin to take that into account and do it both at the national level, and I think eventually you're going to have to look at it internationally because group rights are now being expressed at the international level. And I think Jenny's quite right. You no longer live in a world where you can sort of say that we are chez maître nous. We're not simply not there anymore. So this doesn't exist. Thanks. Please. Uh, can Madison... Uh I find myself coming to the defense of Madison against Locke. <clears throat> uh, Locke's achievement, it seems to me, is mainly in the area of a rule of the majority. When it comes to civil liberties, I think he cared more about liberties of certain people than others. He actually singles out certain groups, speaking of groups, as somewhat less worthy of civil liberties. Jews, Mohammedans, atheists, and Catholics. And we have to see Locke in the context of the uh, the revolution of 1688, uh, and uh, so what I see is Madison taking the next big leap, uh, and I think uh, comparing the two is uh, unkind to Madison, because Madison is speaking for individual liberties. About, um, about uh, the Ninth Amendment being a pit, this really confirms, vindicates the wisdom of James Madison. As you pointed out, um, Madison was against the Bill of Rights precisely because he believed that there was no way to list all the freedoms. Look at the First Amendment. There is no freedom of thought, no freedom of conscience. And what does the Supreme Court do? The Supreme Court has been forced to read these things uh, into speech uh, and so forth. And then finally, 1965, Griswold's 
Griswold versus Connecticut, Supreme Court said, well, let's start using the Ninth Amendment, which says enumeration of freedoms in the foregoing amendments shall not be construed to deny or disparage other freedoms. Basically, what this meant is that James Madison was right. You cannot list all of them, uh, and he was right on another, another, uh, another count. Namely, until about the 20th century, the Bill of Rights didn't do much good at all. And Madison had long since been dead. So at least until he died, I think he was absolutely right that the Bill of Rights itself wouldn't do much good unless the people cared about these things. And the best illustration of Madison's wisdom is, I think, in alien and sedition rights. He was right there, and he could have said, I told you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And other questions now? Pardon? Oh. It's a lady just right there. Thank you. Uh, what I'm worried about is that um, that impeached liar rapist in the White House, Clinton, signed an agreement with the UN for the International Criminal Court, which means that our uh, citizens can be tried for uh, made-up crimes or crimes over in Belgium. And uh, the point is it takes away our sovereignty. It's part of the one-world government that the Rockefeller Rothschild are trying to put over on us, taxes, the UN. We should get out of the UN. Okay. Let's there are a lot of things there. I think I'll move on, yes. <laughs> First of all, I want to say I've had more intellectual stimulation today than I've had in 15 years of living in Arizona. So I want to thank you all for this. <laughs> Second, I want to get to the uh, Federalist Papers again. In the Federalist Papers, Madison says from a study of history that the greatest threat to free government is when you get too great a maldistribution of wealth. And he proposes a number of ways to deal with that, among them a house that represents the average person and a Senate that will protect property. He seems to add things to that as he goes along. He helps to invent another party so we can choose one party if the other party gets to be too close to one faction. He talks about in his essay on parties, silent laws which can in effect redistribute wealth. I think all of these things no longer work, that his options simply are no longer feasible because of the problem of money in politics today. And I, uh, we've only heard a little bit about maldistribution of wealth. Ms. Nadelsky mentioned it uh, at least peripherally. That's a tough word with a <coughs> sore throat. And uh, I'd like to hear some more from the panelists about why we don't hear much about it. And do they agree with me that perhaps these options are no longer feasible given the fact that money plays such a huge role in American mm -hmm. politics. Okay, it's a, it's a good question. Does anybody have, uh, want to make a comment on that? Gordon, you're smirking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think we're going to be able to eliminate uh, money from, from politics. We, we, we probably will have some kind of a, uh, I, I'm an 18th century historian, so I'm speaking simply as a citizen here. I have no expertise whatsoever. Uh, but but um, we, we might be able to, to eliminate money, in, uh, soft money, which will probably finally destroy the political parties once and for all, since that's the only reason for their existence now is to collect soft money. So we have all kinds of unintended consequences that may result from our reforms. But the idea that somehow or other, if politics is important and winning is important, that somehow you can eliminate money 
from the process is simply utopian. So one way or another, that problem is with us. I, my own solution would be full revelation immediately, but um, that is not the route we're heading, and, and uh, I, I, I simply don't believe that there's any possibility whatsoever of eliminating the role of money in politics. We saw that, we're seeing that daily now with, with the pardons. It's inherent in the, in the structure of democracy. There's no way to cut it down. Okay. Lloyd? You, you can't eliminate it, but you can limit it. Uh, for 28 years, I represented a constituency of 100,000 people. Each election, I could spend no more than $65,000. Uh, it was based on, I think, two and a half cents per person. If I overspent by $5, I would have lost my seat because we had an independent electoral commission in which anybody who could challenge the use of money, even to the point where someone gave me a used computer, we'd have to prorate it to make sure that the value of that used computer over the three months of the campaign would be given a valuation. So there are very strict rules that, that you can apply if you want to. I mean, that's up to you. And you simply you, you limit how much is spent. Uh, you also, at the national level, say that uh, there's free advertising on television and radio, but you can't exceed certain kinds of limits, and that there is a public support for candidates so that there can be uh, some equal distribution, so that if you get 15% of the vote, you get half your money back. So there are ways of providing limits, but you have to make a decision that that's what you want to do. And you can, as a result, you're not subject to salt to the, the PAC groups and the corporations the same way. And I, I think that, uh, for me, as an, having been in public life for close to 30 years, uh, it, for me, it was a great protection. It was a great insulation not to have the, 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 the demand, and I know many of my friends in the U.S. Congress, who House of Representatives, who are all basically raising money the day after they get elected and are raising it to the, to the next election. We simply didn't, we didn't have to feel that kind of pressure. I'm not saying that money isn't there, but you can put really tough rules on to limit its application. Yes, please. No, yes. There was a second half to the gentleman's question, and that had to do with econom economic equity in the society at large. Would you speak to that issue a bit? Well, Jennifer spoke to that in her, in her talk, I think. I don't know if you want to say anything more. <laughs> well, it's, it's hard to figure out how to do this in, in two minutes. Um, but I, I guess what I would say is that I think we should take seriously our, our starting point here of Madison and the way in which he always asked, how is the basic structure of the institution going to affect who's going to be in it, how the institution is going to work, how is it going to work with other institutions? and at least to open the question of um, why it is that, uh, by and large, it's still many of the, there is the division between the, the Senate and the House, but even the House, these, the people in those positions simply do not have the average income of the average American. That is, the, I think we, we've heard from, it's not just my view, but uh, Professor Wood also said, Madison hoped to. I think they successfully designed institutions to draw into them the right kind of men of substance and property. It worked. Um, and, and it's not an accident that it worked. And we can try to figure out why it worked and why it continues to work um, and try to ask ourselves, in addition to the kinds of uh, concrete suggestions um, 
that Mr. Axworthy made, what are other kinds of structural changes that we could make so that the people who are in our legislatures look different? So that's one answer. Um, the other thing is, again, I think the, the animus against redistribution in the United States um, is a very powerful one. And I think it goes back in part to the founding concern about protecting property. I don't think it's, it's I don't think the central problems are in fact constitutional. I think they're political. They, they go to the structures. I don't think we're, the answers will lie, uh, despite some of my comments earlier, just with the transformation of uh, the Supreme Court's equality jurisprudence, because it's going to have to go deeper into the actual structures of our institutions so that we could move towards a somewhat more egalitarian set of policies. But as you all know, at the moment, the drift is, if anything, in the opposite direction. Thanks. Yes, please. Why don't you wait for the microphone? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I had a question for Professor Meyer. I was fascinated with your thoughts, which I, due to the limitations of time, on the two Supreme Court decisions that you spoke about, uh, the main decision and the, I call it the ADA decision, in terms of where we seem to be going. Uh, and we jokingly spoke briefly about it seems to be we may be back to Boudin with the court as the king. <laughs> but would you comment on where you think we're going with all of this? Well, I, I see a direction uh, toward retrenchment in a way in terms of the, uh, yeah. Yeah, the advances we made in terms of maybe not, ec certainly not economic equality. We know that the statistics indicate that the long-term tendency in American society wasn't toward a radical uh, dis inequality of income over a couple hundred years and this changed to what? 30, 40 years ago, maybe precise, but within our lifetime, my lifetime anyway, that this has changed in an in acute way. But there simultaneously seems to me interesting there are some level, some, some areas in which we really do insist upon inequality. Uh, I, I, you know, what I was thinking about while, while Jennifer was speaking was the widespread sense in this country that there's something wrong about the health system, that everyone should have access to some basic health care, uh, that that shouldn't somehow correlate with wealth. Uh, there's a kind of a decency, I think, in American opinion, and a willingness to go the long, the long way to go this, that the political leadership doesn't seem to uh, somehow be able to pull off. I think there's been an extraordinary generosity as well toward, toward minorities, and this idea that rights are individual and not group bothers me a bit because, like Jack, I'm conscious of the extent to which religious groups were very important originally in the, in the articulation of rights, uh, to which African Americans were, were a party to the realization of genuine universal rights in the 19th century. Seems to me groups have been in the soup for a very long time. Now, you know, the ADA decision does bother me. Uh, I don't suspect we're going to have a lot of backward stepping in terms of racial groups. The court has, seems to privilege them in that regard. But I am personally disturbed by 
the potential cutting back on equal protection of the law to people with disabilities. Now, you know, many of us, I suppose at some point, have said, boy, that costs a lot. I mean, this is just not a minor thing. But I guess I have personally experienced the fruit of, of this new policy on disabilities in a way that's made me rethink it. That is, I've mentioned to some of you, I have a deaf student in my classes at MIT. Uh, and I teach discussion classes. I don't lecture a lot. Um, and I thought, how am I going to handle a deaf student in this class? Well, this boy was raised in obviously a wonderful family, sent him to good schools. He doesn't seem at all intimidated by his disability. He wants to participate fully. And I think because of these laws, MIT, which you know may not be affected by this immediately because it isn't a state institution, has provided interpreters at tremendous cost. And you'd say, boy, that costs it. But what I realize is that the fruit of this has been so beneficial, uh, not just to the student, but to everyone else. And that is we all stop when this boy wants to talk. We listen to him. Uh, students who, who may have walked uh, by a, a person with a disability with the ordinary kind of discriminatory attitudes that a lot of people have had suddenly realized, you know this kid's as smart as the rest of us are. And he has a right to express himself. So there's these two interpreters who tell him what other people are saying and then tell us what he is saying. And it works just fine. And we've all become a little bit more humane. Now that's a different expression of equality. Uh, I think it, in some ways it counterweights the inequality of wealth, which is disturbing to me, but I think it's quite correct. We, I don't feel the same readiness in the, in the, in the American people to intervene. Uh, but if we're cutting back on the generosity toward people with disabilities, who else? Uh, one group after another seems to be going to possibly coming on the block. There's a cost to this in our humanity. That's my, that's my sensitive. <laughs> okay, yes, please. Can you take one back? Um, thank you. This has been wonderful to come and listen to everybody and to be with the other people listening. And um, especially in the snowstorm. And my question has to do with what this democracy we now um, cherish and um, hope to govern into our children's future will be like for our grandchildren's grandchildren. Maybe you can bear with me while I get the question out. It seems like Madison, when he um, fashioned um, a concrete, his con he tried to fashion the Constitution as a concrete vision, um, like the USS Constitution, much like Columbus set sail on a ship across an ocean that he genuinely believed he would come to something on the other side. And I see the Constitution and the government we now have that Madison couldn't possibly, I mean, I can't believe if he walked in the door, if he'd just been dropped down in the past two weeks and he saw what had been going on here, I can't imagine that he, he wouldn't be as shocked as many of us are. And I wonder, though, what he would do about it how he would then advise, what questions he would like to pose, um, what might bother him, and if he would say, like I do, while there is this great dis um, 
distancing from groups. For example, all the soft money does come from groups, not individuals. Um, what, what he would do about that to, to hand off or to develop the Constitution um, so that our grandchildren's grandchildren um, have the same or similar world, the goodness that we have. And I'd like to thank all the generous people for the generosity. And I'd, I'd like to ask, what would Madison do now if he had been just dropped down here in the last couple of weeks? What would he be saying and talking about? Thank you. <clears throat> thank you. I think this might be a good place to end. And I'll put to the panel the question, <clears throat> excuse me, what would James Madison do if he appeared here this evening? This is what was known as WWMD, right? You know, I, I, I have a nasty confession to make. I mean, Barb was nice enough to call me a public intellectual. And I like to crank out the occasional op-ed, as does Pauline and I think Gordon. But, you know, we're really just 18th century historians up here. Uh, you know, we are citizens, and we have our particular interests and cares, and sometimes they're informed by an expertise, and sometimes they're no different from anyone else's. I happen to think we're a lot better off, and I know Gordon would certainly agree with this. Um, I think Pauline would too, that uh, if we try to understand the difference between the present and the past. You know, and I tried to suggest this morning that one of the striking things about Madison, it seems to me, is after 1776, as, 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 as informed as his thinking is by the examples of history, he understood that um, the Americans had really embarked on a different course of their own by virtue of, you know, <coughs> the revolution and independence, and much of what they'd learned and received, though it remained, you know, from, from prior authorities, though it remained generally useful and informative, wasn't really dispositive. You know, you had a kind of, I wouldn't go, you know, sometimes, sometimes they are making it up on the fly, they're certainly doing it under exigent circumstances. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's better for us to reflect, uh, and this is probably closer to Jenny Andelsky's position, you know, reflect on the differences between our world and his, to try to, sharp, to try to sharpen our understanding of our society by appreciating the very different context within which its formative institutions emerge. One thing I, I think most about Madison, you know, I was doing my book on the Constitution, I, I came upon a, a wonderful letter, but a very disturbing letter that Madison writes in, in January 1788 to uh, Edmund Randolph, who, you know, the governor of Virginia, Randolph was a trimmer. This time he's kind of going back and forth between being a Federalist, being an Anti-Federalist, not clear whether he's going to support the Constitution, and, and he was still endorsing the idea of a second convention, which Madison thought was absolutely nuts, because you'd have big pre-commitment problems. You know, you'd never get agreement the second time around unless everybody knew what the conflicts had been the first time around. It's one of the rare letters in which I think the mask really drops from, from Madison's sense of diplomacy, in which he says, he says to Randolph, look, Paraphrasing again, most people on most issues aren't really on an issue as complicated as the Constitution really are not capable of forming their own judgments. They really have to follow the judgments of their betters, of you know the opinion leaders. And so he's saying, in effect, to Randolph, look, if you and George Mason and Patrick Henry hadn't gotten a bee in your bonnet and decided you wanted to oppose the Constitution, we wouldn't be having these problems to begin with. There is in this letter. And I, really, I know very few other letters in, in Madison's correspondence which are really quite as direct, and really in a sense quite as naked as this one, saying, look, public opinion, which Madison really deeply respects in principle, is oftentimes very flawed. It's very uninformed. 
So what am I suggesting here? Well, one part, and to think seriously about that Madison, you know, the Madison who is in some ways deeply conservative, deeply reactionary, you know, libertarian too, in some sense might seem to us to be rather disturbing. I mean, this is a very anti-democratic kind of statement. But on the, at the same time, it's being uh, delivered in conjunction with Madison's uh, own effort, and he was uh, the, the architect of this as, as well as some other things, to insist, a point that Pauline was talking about a little while ago, that the Constitution, to, to be a Constitution, had to be ratified through some fairly direct expression of popular sovereignty. Uh, and he was very clear in this. He's clear in this for lots of reasons, and some of them are very political, and some of them are, are very theoretical. So what do we make of this? We have this deep private pessimism about de democracy, and it, and it shows in exactly the kinds of attitudes about elitist office holding that Jenny has some anxieties uh, about. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there is a deep commitment as a matter of principle to the, to the concept of popular government. I think on the whole, we'd be better off trying to come to grips with that con the conflicted origins of our democratic system. And, and you know, instead of asking WWMD, what would Madison do? How about WWMD survive? What, 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 no, what, what, what did, no, WD, and one way, whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm under the weather, so I can't be I can't be responsible for for the elevator. Uh, what you know, what did Madison do, and why did he do it? Thanks. Okay. Well, I think uh, to to carry forth the the two lobe imagery that that uh, Jack offered us earlier, that Madison was somebody who always was thinking empirically based on his experience and. Think, reflecting on deep principles and abstractions at the same time, and that's what gave the depth to his insights. I, I think the first thing he'd want to know, to ask all of us, is to figure out where are the threats today? Where are the threats to liberty? And I think one of the answers is something that's come up already. It's, and it's, I think, things that were neglected at the outset in 1787. And the, a key one is the interpenetration of economic and political power, which while it cannot ever be eradicated, it can be significantly transformed. Another threat is, I think, the uh, worsening still of the problem that Jack just identified that, that Madison so candidly addressed there. That is that our issues, if anything, have become even more technical, even less accessible to easy public debate and deliberation. But we shouldn't do what Madison did, which is to think that the answer to that lies in getting a good elite in office. That just cannot be the right answer. Um, I think, it, despite the fact that I think in some ways, uh, Canada is, a, is an interesting sort of counterexample. Um, Gordon said earlier that he thought I was claiming that Canada was more of a participatory democracy than the United States. And I did not claim that. I don't see it that way. It is a much more deeply egalitarian country. And there are those who argue that these two things are related. That is, Canada has had a benign elite, not as concerned about democratic excess ever as the Americans, and that they have used their elite power to form, to direct a country in a more egalitarian direction. <coughs> than the United States. So, but nevertheless, despite this uh, possible benign example before us of a benign elite, I think that our answer has to be to go back to taking seriously all the rights Madison was committed to in principle and to ask ourselves what would it take 
to transform, as I said, our institutions in terms of who ends up in them, but to transform the nature of public discourse so that people have the kind of education, have the, the engagement with politics to educate themselves informally, to have ongoing conversations about public debates, which I think has sinks to an ever lower and lower level in the United States. Okay. Lloyd? Well, I, I, my response would be, in answer to the question, what would Madison do if he arrived, he'd immediately take himself to future shop and buy a laptop computer and uh, probably a cell phone and maybe if he really wanted to get sophisticated, uh, go wireless. Um, because that probably is the transforming experience that uh, politics and government are now facing in terms of shifting the way in which people participate. Uh, it is opening up a vast array of opportunities for individuals to get information to begin with that is unfiltered and undirected by gatekeepers, the elite if you want to use it. Uh, it has immense power uh, to mobilize uh, public opinion uh, in, in a global fashion, not just in national terms, but in the global fashion behind a variety of movements, whether it's environmental or whether it's uh, um, dealing with uh, women's rights or whether it's dealing with the, the question of uh, humanitarian rights. An enormous, uh, incredible shift that's gone on that uh, is confusing people in most governments and uh, at both at the national and international level, not sure how to deal with it. Uh, on the other side of it, there's a dark side to it, there's another side to it. It is also becomes a very powerful tool by which people uh, can use it to exploit uh, children sexually, that they can use it to you know, proffer and traffic and drugs, they can use it as a, an immensely powerful tool uh, to excite fanaticism and extremism in political terms. And uh, the, the structure, I think that two-lobal strategy of the, the practical uh, and the intellectual uh, is, let's put it this way, I think the demand far exceeds the supply right now in terms of being able to figure out how that works. But I think there are still some principles, as I read it, that are, are very much embedded in the writings in the Federalist Papers that begin to deal with the question of how do you uh, begin to um, provide balances uh, against these competing trends. But if you don't understand what that impact is going to be, then I think uh, you lose the opportunity to substantially democratize your governance. At the same time, you have to provide some response to the way that it doesn't become uh, simply a total anarchy uh, throughout. And I, I underline the point that, I, and I think it's one that uh, I'd like to see some good 18th century historian scholars put their mind to how you govern in the 21st century based upon those principles, because right now the level of international governance uh, is not keeping up with the hard reality of the kind of world we're living in. Thank you. Gordon? Then... Well, I want to just say a couple of things about, um, first about group rights and, and Madison. I, I think he did have one conception of group rights and it turned out to be the states and and we heard um, we heard uh, Pauline Mayer talk about that and that turned out to be a disaster uh, for for the for the country in a sense uh, that that uh, that the Civil War resulted from these group rights so insofar as he believed in any group rights it were the states but I wanted to make some comment about this problem of uh, equality and our great disparity of wealth I happen to believe that the United States is one of the most egalitarian nations in the world, despite, despite the great inequalities of wealth. In fact, I can think of only a couple of nations where uh, the, the sense of equality is, is, is equal to, to ours, and that may be Australia. That is to say, the psychological equality, which is really crucial, that one person feels that he's as good as another person. That's a very important 
uh, element of, e of equality. And the reason why we Americans can put up with this great, great disparities of wealth is because we believe that wealth is the least significant of the ways in which one person can assert superiority over another. If someone says to you, I am better than you because my father, or because of my grandfather, because of my heritage, because of my race, because of my uh, ethnicity, there's not much you can do about it. But if someone says, I'm superior to you because I have more money than you, that does not bother Americans because they say, well, all right, just wait till next week. I'll make more money. So I think that's a very important part of our, of our psyche, a very important part of the culture that allows, allowed Americans in the 19th century and allows us today to put up with these gross disparities of wealth despite feeling very equal to one another. I think that's a very important part of the culture that's not easily uh, understood, I think, by people in other... Uh, in other nations. Good. Uh, John, want to say a word? And, and, and if Pauline does, I'll close it there. I think another way of casting the question which we're trying to respond to is the issue is whether Madison was an optimist or a pessimist about the future. And as Jack mentioned, there are deep strains of pessimism uh, in Madison's thought about uh, majorities and uh, democracy democracy and things like that, uh, and the laws of social progress and political economy that he uh, studied and was familiar with through his education, partly here at Princeton, did lead him to envisage way down the, the, the passage of time a very bleak sort of future where the distribution of property became so unequal uh, that the property holders would be a very small minority of the population and there would be this great propertyless uh, mass, and this is possibly dangerous. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, Madison, although you can find pessimism, never succumbed to pessimism. Uh, uh, he was always, somehow he retained a, a spirit of optimism that despite how, no matter how serious the problems were, that, that some way uh, the, the political system that he put in place would, would come up with solutions with it, a bit of institutional tinkering here. And uh, in the 1820s, we find occasional references in letters when he's talking about this sort of thing. And uh, he, one of the things he talks about as a, as a remedy, and I don't really know quite what he meant here, was education. Uh, education somehow might help ameliorate or uh, deal with some of these, uh, some of, some of these issues. And uh, education inequality, of course, is very much a function uh, of wealth inequality. And that does make uh, this a, a contemporary or a relevant concern, as uh, we might well wonder today. You know, are we, in fact, taking enough care of education? It's, I think it's traditional in America that sort of educational opportunity has, in fact, been a great vehicle of mobility and one way of softening the edges uh, of other forms of uh, inequality uh, that, that arise from, uh, from distribution of wealth. But um, uh, leaving aside all the reservations about the what would Madison do sort of question, uh, maybe what he leads us with at the end is, is, is a spirit that even at the end of his life, no matter how serious problems looked, he, he, he remained optimistic about the future uh, and that uh, there would be ways of, uh, of working out these problems and we need not get too depressed about them. And, Maybe that's, that's where, we, where we leave them, I don't know.
You know, I was struck in, in rereading Madison's writings, or reading them in some cases, from the late 1820s and the 1830s, the extent that he was optimistic. There was a letter which he said, I, I am hopeful. And I was very struck by this because it seemed to me an, a, another exception to a generalization Gordon made in his book on radicalism the Re American Revolution about the founders dying very pessimistic. I don't think Madison did. In fact, he felt much calmer about the Republic by the 1830s than he had in the 1790s for good, for good reason. But I want to pick up actually on an, another distinction that Gordon made almost in passing earlier, which is one I've thought about a lot. His distinction between what we can say as historians, and here I would say not just the 18th, but hey, we work on the 19th century, and occasionally I even work on the 20th. Uh, and, and our role as citizens. Uh, the problem, I mean, I'm very conscious of it because I abrogated the line. I violated the line once. I signed that historian's letter on the impeachment and have regretted it ever since because I think we extended our expertise to an area where we were, uh, we, we shouldn't have been. Uh, in any case, what can we do? Well, you know, we can make these comparisons. I think Jack mentioned that. I did that in my talk. I can talk about the concept of sovereignty as it existed in the sources I study. I can read the Supreme Court decisions and say it's different. Uh, when I start saying what would Madison do, however, the, the problem is that you tend to take Madison as a support for positions in contemporary politics and, and who knows, the guy's been dead for a very long time. Uh, you know, um, obviously my concern, if I were to say what would I, if I were going to say what would Madison do, I, I can't help but find some parallels between the direction the Supreme Court is making today and the kinds of fears that he expressed in, in uh, 1798 and 1800. I see uh, a court that's starting to imperil basic rights. The whole rights revolution of the 20th century depended on the court's ability to use the 14th Amendment to enforce the first 10 on the states. And, and uh, that tendency is in a little jeopardy this week. Uh, I'm disturbed by the extent of claims of power by the court. I'm uh, disturbed by its partisan character. But hey, I, those are my my anxieties as a citizen, I think. Uh, they are certainly informed by the way I have studied history, but I don't think my study of history determines any conclusion. What I will say is I think, you know, we do live in a more democratic world in some way than, oh, in many ways certainly than, than, than Madison did. And among the things that have been democratizing are our capacity to get information. Uh, uh, that, that compare with would-be experts. Hey, you can get the complete uh, text of the Supreme Court cases, either in the New York Times or, if you like, on your computer. Uh, just type in the name of the case, and it will tell you where <laughs> various sites where you can get it, Cornell, FindLaw.com, whatever. Uh, read them. Think about them. Princeton graduates are, by definition, intelligent people. You don't have to be an expert. You don't need to have gone to law school to read these. There are ways in which legal experts can certainly uh, inform us, but there's an awful lot we can figure out for ourselves. This is not really rocket science, but there are issues that, it, that, that affect all of us. And certainly, hey, if there's an elite, I would guess the, educate, the, the uh, 
graduates of, of, of major distinguished American universities are, are appropriately in that, in a meritocracy. Uh, the crime would be if we didn't use our God-given capacities for the good of the Republic by investigating these issues and coming to our own determination as citizens. Well, I'm going to uh, thank everybody in just one second. I remind you again that uh, you need your badges to get back in here this evening. The doors will be open at 6.30. Uh, but the lecture itself isn't until uh, 8 o'clock. It's been a wonderful panel. It seemed to me you skirted my favorite maxim about historians, which is that historians do not predict the future, they predict the past. But I think we've done a pretty good job at going beyond that. I'm going I'm to violate my role in saying one substantive thing, though, which is, and I'll leave you to chew on it, I think James Madison would have been much more upset by Brown versus Board of Education than by the Garrett case. But we can talk about that another time. And let's thank the panel.